I'm Wendy Muse, creator of the Left Pocket Project, which brings you the history of leftists of color one swipe at a time. And this is the Left Pocket Project podcast. In this episode, I'll be speaking with Richard for our third installment of the Reading Revolution series. I'll get into what we talk about in just a sec, but first I'd like to do some basic housekeeping. Just as a reminder, you can support the Left Pocket Project by liking, sharing, and reviewing the podcast and social media content on Twitter, Facebook, Reddit, and Media Revolt. You can download and stream the podcast whenever you want on SoundCloud, Spreaker, and iTunes. And you can find all of this by searching for Left POC, and that's L-E-F-T-P-O-C. I also want to remind everyone that you can interact with Left POC on Curious Cat, where you can submit questions and comments for the podcast and for the Reading Revolution series in particular. Someone was kind enough to send in a question about our episode on Fidel Castro's speech, History Will Absolve Me, and you'll have to listen further to hear our answer. Finally, be on the lookout for additional new episodes coming soon. I've had a very busy past few months with the semester wrapping up and my preparing to leave the U.S. for six straight months of additional dissertation research in Brazil, Portugal, and Mozambique, so thank you all for your patience with the limited content as of late. I will, of course, be very busy while abroad, but I'll still be releasing content while I'm away, internet access, and sound quality permitting. Now on with the show. In this episode of the Left Pocket Project podcast, Richard and I have our third discussion for the Reading Revolution series, in which we read work produced by, or that inspired, leftists of color. Building upon our previous episodes, we decided to read the mini-manual of the Urban Guerrilla by Brazilian communist, revolutionary thinker, and martyr, Carlos Marighella. He and his six siblings were born to a poor immigrant Italian worker and a descendant of African slaves in Salvador, a city in the northeast of Brazil. Carlos had his sights set on becoming a civil engineer, which he studied while at the local Polytechnic College, but soon became radicalized after witnessing government abuses of activists and rural workers. When asked why he gave up uh, what would have been a secure and prestigious career, he said, I gave up my career and decided to dedicate myself to political activity because there was no honor in being an engineer in a country in which children needed to work in order to eat. He officially joined the Communist Party of Brazil in 1932. After a series of torture and imprisonment, he traveled clandestinely throughout Brazil and around the world, including a stay in China and in Cuba in the 1950s and 1960s, respectively, and became increasingly involved in the underground political organizing that would ultimately cost him his life. After the U.S.-backed military dictatorship began in Brazil in 1964, Marighella grew frustrated by what he considered a passive communist party. Seeking to truly put his politics into action and to fight for the rights of Brazilians under the military regime, he separated from the Communist Party to begin the revolutionary left organization known as the Ação Libertadora Nacional, or ALN. Marighella was heavily surveilled and known as the enemy number one of the dictatorship, and was eventually murdered in cold blood by police in São Paulo in 1969. Marighella's writing and organizing sought to bring greater visibility to the plight of rural populations by bridging their struggles with those of Brazilians living in major cities through a broad set of revolutionary acts, which 
key details in the mini-manual. Here's our discussion of the text and how it translates beyond Brazil's past into our present. So I'm here today with Richard doing our, I think, what is this, our third Reading Revolution? Is that right? I'm getting old. I can't keep track of the number. I believe it is. And uh, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it's it's uh, more reading than I've been able to do outside of it uh, for a while, unfortunately, if uh, not counting, you know, all the fragments of text that I get from various other things and articles and such. But uh, it's been an enlightening experience so far. And each episode and each reading has been uh, very valuable to me and growing to learn and understand theories behind uh, the stuff that I'm interested in. And so uh, this is another piece and it's a, it's a little bit of a different piece. And to me uh, has some interesting concepts, but I'll pass it back to you, Wendy. Yeah. I mean, I appreciate that. And I agree with you. It's funny because so this week, obviously we read um, Carlos Marighella's uh, book, the mini manual of the urban gorilla and um, getting a, however you want to pronounce it i'm pronouncing it different ways because i think sometimes when i say guerrilla people are like what but then when i say gorilla it sounds like i'm talking about gorilla gorillas like animals which um i don't want to do so because <laughs> he also he like has a section on gorillas that we can talk about later on on what that yes. means but um <laughs> i found myself being like wait is this a typo but then i realized anyway we'll get to that uh but mm -hmm. i i really liked reading this book um, and I like reading for this series in general because it actually forces me to deeply read things as opposed to my normal reading activity, which, as you mentioned, in terms of getting things that are like bits and pieces here and there, you skim it because we're overwhelmed with information or, you know, for like school related stuff and dissertation writing, I'm kind of just reading sections or chapters or whatever. I may not read a whole book. I may have to read a book in a day as opposed to really sitting down with it and um, digesting it and taking in what's being said. And so I really appreciated reading this. And I would highly suggest, actually, for those of you who have been following Reading Revolution, if you haven't had a chance to read the other texts that we um, talked about for the last few episodes, definitely sit down with this one because it's very short. It's very straightforward, very clear. Um, and I think he raises a lot of issues that are, he raises the issues in a way that's easy to understand and kind of, I mean, I would say very easy to apply. And, and we'll get into that later too, because it seems some people would say, wait, he talks about violence a lot. And I'm not saying like blow, go blow stuff up. But what I am saying is the fundamental um, theory and ideas that, that are sort of the foundation that he builds this text on are really important for us to apply in our own activism and our own way of thinking about any sort of left future um, in terms of politics and everyday life. So I, I personally was also really excited to read this and, and enjoyed it and took a lot from it. Um, for, I was yeah. just going to say, for those that uh, are uh, listening to it using a, a, either naturalreaders.com or some other uh, format or some other service, that does that reads the text to you it's one of the, it's been my favorite so far to listen to the the semi-robotic voice say, <laughs> say to me and as we get into it you'll probably if you haven't read it already you'll you'll see why yeah i can imagine it if you were having a robot read this to you it might make you get sort of hints of westworld or something like there's maybe a robot revolution uh but anyway for those who aren't watching westworld it's about um sentient beings that are programmed and that end up having a slight revolution. But anyway, again, not related. Yeah, um, you, don't get me started. <laughs> <laughs> so on to MIDI manual of the urban guerrilla. Um, I, I first just wanted to talk about the actual opening because he has his own opening 
for the text. Um, it's a dedication to his comrades in arms who had actually been killed or imprisoned. Um, and he says, you know, he, ta- he, he does a lot of comparisons between what's happening in Brazil at the time and like the medieval governance and violence and the Nazi government and their violence. And, you know, all of this is very recent, like and not the medieval stuff, but the Nazi, the Nazi regime is just around the corner in terms of time because he's writing this in the 60s. So it's it's very recent and on people's minds. And, um, you know, I think I think something for us to keep in mind as well when we're reading this, that he's not just talking about he's not just talking about what's going on in Brazil, although obviously that's his primary focus since he's in Brazil and writing this about Brazilian anti-government struggle um, or anti-dictatorial. It's a very practical document in that way. Yeah, it is. Um, But it's also, I think, you know, I think there are aspects of it that we can um, consider applying to other revolutions and other moments in time where we see people take up arms and fight oppressive governments. You can kind of see comparable moves uh, throughout. So in his introduction, um, you know, one of the things that I found most interesting about this introduction is that he has these really important kernels of knowledge that he imparts upon us that I think that stuck with me as I was reading the text. Um, one of them is that he says, like those comrades who mem- whose memories we revere, as well as those taken in combat, what we must do is fight. So basically he's saying, like, don't just say, oh, I feel really bad about what happened. I miss my friend. I miss my you know, fellow leader, whatever. But actually take their memory and put it into action. Um, which I think is something that's important for all of us to do instead of just sort of having these specters of, you know, oh, this person was a Black Panther member and they were really cool and we're going to put it on a T-shirt, but we don't have any understanding of like what they stood for or um, we don't really want to take up comparable measures to change the government and change the environment that we live in. And the other thing I thought was great from this is that he says, under any theory and under any circumstances, the duty of every revolutionary is to make a revolution. So it seems kind of circular, um, but I think really applicable and important for, for us to keep in mind as we're discussing the rest of the text. Absolutely. Uh, that, that particular last quote about the duty of every revolutionary to make the revolution uh, stuck with me as well. And uh, as I, had to highlight that myself it was uh, it it, and you mentioned uh, the black panther aspect and was like i chairman fred hammond has done a lot of that for me and like i constantly find myself challenging you know it's like what am i doing how can i be doing more and like where like what and and basically what how can i be doing more and i find myself you know i have to learn and understand things better before i can take good action in this document reinforces that for me as well. And we'll, I'm sure we'll get into that uh, when we cover, we get to that part of the document. I also really appreciate it as well. And this is something that Fred Hampton and, and many other Black Panthers also um, made very apparent when they were active is he talks a lot about the importance of assuming responsibility for what's said and done. He says um, that we can no longer deny the facts or continue to say that the conditions for armed struggle do not exist. It is necessary to assume responsibility for what is said and done. Therefore, an- anonymity becomes a problem in work like this. The important fact is that there are patriots prepared to fight like soldiers, and the more there are, the better. Um, I think that, you know, obviously he talks about the importance of anonymity in being a an urban guerrilla. Obviously, I mean, you have to hide from authorities and the like. But I think he's very clear about um, the importance of not being anonymous and putting out 
content like this, right? He's saying that, you know, I'm, I'm writing that armed struggle is necessary. We can't keep putting this off. I have to take responsibility for what's happening to my country. Um, and I'm not afraid to do that. And he also takes on, it kind of adds new meaning to terms that you and I discussed earlier off air, but terms that are repurposed. Can you talk a bit about that part towards the end of the dedication? I thought your comments here were really important. Oh, yeah. Uh, I talked about how when my first impression of skimming over the document, I, I saw some words and he, he lays some various uh, aspects out. But, you know, he talks about, you know, uh, street tactics and strikes and work stoppages and desertions, and diversions is like, OK, that that sounds like things that I can uh, relate to. And then I see uh, parts about executions, kidnapping, sabotage, terrorism, armed propaganda. It's like this is. That, that's a lot. I'm going to need uh, I'm going to need some explanation here. So there's going to need some decent, decent exposition to help me understand why why I'm supposed to embrace those things. And he did it in in a way that I thought was really great. Great in that he you know he's uh, reappropriating the terms and like taking them back in very much of a. And I probably should have just saved this comment now because the format's falling apart. But <laughs> essentially. <laughs> You know, he's just like, it's, you know, he's, it was very, you know, it's an, it's our word now moment, you know, it's like, mm -hmm. uh, you know, terrors, I'm going to embrace them and, you, you know, I'm taking them back and, uh, you know, that aspect of it. And so <laughs> uh, that to me was uh, a very uh, powerful moment in, in understanding this text. And it was an actual, I mean, the whole process of, as I mentioned, was a bit emotional for me and so like mm -hmm. i was like wow okay i can understand this perspective in a way that i if i hadn't taken the time to keep looking after i was you know shocked by the words in the first place uh yeah. i wouldn't have grabbed it and uh, i'm really glad that i was able to and as you were talking about before this deep reading and how we're approaching these texts is really gave me that opportunity and uh, i can't that, that that can't go underappreciated for me so mm -hmm. And it's important too. like, he wrote this, the same, like this the dedication, at least he wrote the dedication the same year that he was killed in 1969. Um, and he says here, you know, regarding taking back meaning, as you said earlier, he says the accusation of quote unquote violence or quote unquote terrorism no longer has the negative meaning it used to have. It has acquired new clothing, a new color. It doesn't divide. It doesn't discredit. On the contrary, it represents a center of attraction. Today, to be quote-unquote violent or a quote-unquote terrorist is a quality that ennobles any honorable person because it is an act worthy of a revolutionary engaged in armed struggle against the shameful military dictatorship and its atrocities. And I think throughout this text, and again, we're going to kind of talk about this, but this, this laid out very clearly, what the, very clearly what the aim of the text was. Instead of focusing on these words that they often like the, the military regime or the press or whatever often used to characterize people who are fighting for their freedom, focus instead on why they're fighting for their freedom, right? Like who is, who is actually enacting violence? Who is actually enacting terrorism and upon whom? And is this, you know, these are not sort of acts out of nowhere, right? Um, any sort of violence, property destruction, et cetera, that the urban guerrilla, uh, guerrilla is engaging in, at least according to the instructions in this text, right, should be based on the, the very important fact that, like, the government is oppressing people 
and it's oppressing people to the point that it's torturing, it's disappearing people, it's murdering families, it's raping, it's killing children, everything. You can't just separate yourself and say, we're going to find a peaceful solution to this if your life is on the line. Um, and I think that, yeah, I think it's just, it's very important and a very telling um, response to have to say, let's not focus so much on semantics. And if we are going to focus on semantics, I'm going to reclaim them then, you know, like mm -hmm. I embrace this term. That's fine. If I'm considered a terrorist, like not me personally, but this is his, these are his <laughs> words, right? He's saying that, you know, you can call me a terrorist, but at the end of the day, I'm, I'm fighting a much more terroristic uh, group of people who are, who are murdering innocent citizens. So there's got to be a, a line, you know? So, yeah, if I'm a terrorist, whatever you are must be worse than that. So, right. Absolutely. <laughs> and, yeah. And uh, like, I thought that was uh, very interesting. And, and so th what I found also important is that these terms are relatively universal to these struggles in right. that. And, and Wendy had mentioned this off air and that you're the revolutionaries and uh, people that are the guerrillas that are fighting are always going to be labeled with these with these labels. And so by claiming them and, and re repurposing them or and reassigning what they mean in the, the way that they're perceived by the people that are hearing them as opposed to the people that are using them mm. uh, is uh, very important. And so I was reminded of uh, Angela Davis and this happened a lot uh, with the Black Panther movement and just a uh, you know, black liberation in general is, you know, do you approve of violent means or, you know, how, how is your take on violence and, and, you know, in the revolutionary struggle. And there's a clip on YouTube you can find that um, we'll probably put the link in the description uh, mm -hmm. that, you know, where she talks about, you know, it's like, I grew up where with my the neighbors getting bombed and human bodies, you know, parts of bodies seen on the street and, you know, like this horrible, horrible violence. And then, you know, you're going to ask me if I approve of violence in, mm -hmm. in, my, in, my, in my struggle. Like, I, I just don't understand. And, you know, that I think is this it's captured in this as well in the embracing of the, the violent, the necessity of the violence and the perpetualness of the violence being afflicted against the oppressed peoples. And and so why violent, you know, being violent in their defense uh, becomes a necessity. And mm -hmm. as what you described, the situation in Brazil was, was atrocious and uh, the types of things that were happening were, you know, uh, unimaginable i think for some for most people in, in the u.s especially uh and so to be in that situation then it 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 helps me understand the the firmness with which uh carlos <laughs> goes through uh, and, and you know makes his case for why this violence is necessary and righteous mm -hmm. yeah and he's i mean to go sort of start breaking down um what he says in the, the heart of the book, the meat of the book, right beyond the dedication, which in and of itself, is, as I said, I think it's great, right? It tells us a lot about his way of thinking and what we're gonna read. Um, but he starts to really define what the urban gorilla is. He talks about the kind of person he is and what he, he or she has to do. Um, you know, it's very much a, a mini manual, right? Like it's literally a manual. So it's like an instruction booklet on how to be uh, a gorilla. And we can talk a little bit more about what that means too, um, why he wrote it in this way. But I think that one of the things that stood out to me as well is not just his definition of what the urban guerrilla is. Um, you know, he says it's a person who fights the military dictatorship using unconventional methods, who's flexible, who's clever, who has to do all these things. He has, he's basically like a, an everyman, right? A jack of all trades. He has to know how to do every damn thing. Um, but at the same time, 
he says, fundamentally, you know, this person is someone who's a, who's a patriot, a real patriot, because the military dictatorship is not patriotic. They're giving away all the land to the North Americans, to imperialists. Um, you know, they're antagonizing people. They're physically murdering their fellow citizen. So it's not quite, you know, it's, it's an inversion of what we consider patriotism. Um, and, and he's saying, no, no, we're the real patriots because we actually do care about the people and we do want change and we want change for the betterment of everyday Brazilians. Um, and, but I think beyond defining who this person is, I was fascinated by how he defines what they're not. So he opens in his definition of the urban guerrilla by talking about the fact that they're not quite like criminals, despite the fact that they engage in activity that some would characterize as criminal, like robbing banks or robbing military barracks, things like that. Um, at the same time, it's not quite regular criminal activity because he says that an everyday criminal oftentimes um, is going to towards benefiting his himself, right? He's trying to benefit his own personal, his personal self uh, mm -hmm. through his actions. And it's not the same, obviously, as the right-wing counter-revolutionary, which is the other enemy, or the gorilla. He uses, he uses the term <laughs> gorilla, like the animal, um, who engages in violent acts, murders people, harms people, robs, you know, robs the everyday person um, through economic means to, again, enrich himself or to enrich imperialists. So it's, I think, again, it's sort of this use of language that's really important in the text that makes us rethink all of these categories, right? Um, mm -hmm. And that makes us rethink, like, who, what is patriotism? What is revolution? What is, um, you know, right and wrong, even, under duress? Yeah, and it harkens back for me to our last reading about propaganda and uh, the importance of the terms that we use. And I think because those terms are so prevalent and uh, are so uh, powerful in the psyche, I think it's important, although hard, to to take some sort of uh, ownership of them in a way that essentially in in the context of the text, it shows that. So when people hear those words used, they're they're hearing something else and they're hearing someone else referenced and mm -hmm. then, then the intentional. And when you take the power out of the person, like the people being able to use the word, it, it becomes a very uh, powerful weapon against the, the tyranny. Mm -hmm. And especially in terms of weaponry, it's like not just a physical weapon, right? Not just, as you said, it's, it's an ideological weapon as well, because you're changing the way people think. You're making mm -hmm. the public recognize that while they're painting the revolutionary as the enemy, look at who's actually robbing you, you know? Like it, and they have the, the power of their propaganda being true which, mm -hmm. versus the, the tyranny. They, their propaganda has to conflict with the reality of people that they're trying to convince. Right. It's a complete, you know, deflect and distract campaign as opposed to literally addressing what's actually happening. And that's how that's the sort of propaganda, as you said, that the revolutionary has to take up. Um, and he actually says as well that beyond just I mean, one of the things that I think he that's interesting that he talks about is the use of this kind of destruction, material destruction and violence towards the military regime as itself a form of propaganda, right? So even mm -hmm. though it can be distorted, um, the point is to continue to wear down, he says, he literally uses the term to wear down the, you know, the, the economic and political and social system that's being run by the military. You have to continue to assault their areas of power in order to make the general public recognize that not only are they misusing their power, but they're not as powerful as you think, right? Um, mm -hmm. And I think that's also something that's interesting because oftentimes 
when we talk about uh, revolution in the current day. And we'll get to this in the second half again. I'm now I'm violating the format. <laughs> um, but I think we often hear, and you and I have talked about this before, and I think it's becoming almost a refrain for our podcast here, but it's, we often hear there's nothing you can do, right? The state mm-hmm. is super powerful. They have super high grade weapons. You know, they have all these, this, they have the, the press and foreign government help and all these things. And, and sometimes we have to look back at these older documents and recognize that they too were facing an incredibly uphill battle of a government and a military that had way more power than them and that had international support, right? I mean, mm-hmm. in the Brazilian case, they had the support of almost the entire West. Um, and they were getting money and funding and military training and everything from the US, from from England, from many parts of the world. And so it's kind of, it's it's bizarre that we look at a time period like the past and we say, oh yeah, they could do it because it wasn't, it wasn't as advanced as it is now. But it was then for them, you know, like it was <laughs> yeah. advanced then. It's just, it doesn't seem like it now, but it was advanced for them. You know, like the average person didn't have a helicopter. The average person didn't have, you know, military grade weapons. And this is why he advises, you know, rob the military barracks. If you're in the military, defect. You know, there are all sorts of tactics that are ways to undermine power because power ultimately is, I mean, we think of it as this abstract, all knowing, all powerful force, but ultimately there's always a gap. You know, there's always, there are always holes you can punch in. And I think he's really pushing at sort of starting to punch those holes and to change the way people think about power too. Yes. And it, the, the whole manual is very systemic in the attack uh, against the, the power structure. That's the oppressive military tyranny. And so like uh, each step and each part is, you know, builds on each other and has a compounding effect that any, like any one action, it, it has its own significance, but uh, each action adding on top of each other has a multiplying effect rather than just a, you know adding effect. Mm-hmm. And one of those things that he says that has to be something upon which we add and multiply is um, knowledge. <laughs> so <laughs> this is a pretty big one, and it's interesting and well timed because I've been seeing some debates online, and this is sort of a long long term debate um, on the left. But how important is it is to read? How important is it uh, to read sort of fundamental leftist texts or how you know do we have to really read Lenin or do we have to read Marx and do we have to read this person and know about that person well no you don't have to no one's gonna like put a gun to your head and say you have to read Marx but it doesn't hurt to understand the ideological underpinnings of what you're interested in doing to change the world right it doesn't hurt just like I'm a black person and I think it's important for me to understand Black history, right? Um, because <laughs> it helps me understand my position in the world. It helps me understand what people before me did to change their circumstances, or at least to attempt to change their circumstances and to challenge those in power who are pressing them on the basis of their race and a variety of other factors. Um, you know, I don't think it hurts. I, 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 you can you can go through life not knowing things and be proud of that, oddly. But I don't think it's a good idea. I think it's, and I don't think. Oh, I know. Carlos didn't think it was a good idea either. <laughs> so he literally says that the urban guerrilla must, and I emphasize must, have a certain minimal political understanding. So he suggests reading a lot of Che Guevara and some other works that were written by Brazilian revolutionaries, as well as uh, news pieces, you know, regularly read a newspaper of uh, Brazilian revolutionary groups called Uguehileiro. So there's a lot of... Um, 
there's a lot of advice within this to say, not only are you going to act, but before you act, you have to have an understanding of why you're acting. And I think that's, you know, that's something that you and I both have stressed <laughs> in mm-hmm. doing the series. But it, and it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to sit down and be a freaking Marxist scholar, but it doesn't hurt to read or have someone read to you or discuss understand on a basic level what are alternatives to the system that we currently have and why do we care that we want to change that system for me i relate to it in a way of uh, i remember in you know especially elementary school it was very it was a common problem but you know the teacher would make some start with some sort of announcement and before they could explain all the hands shoot up and questions start getting asked and mm. you know <laughs> it's like if you just wait for the rest of the sentences that were coming after that first sentence, most of these questions will get answered. And mm-hmm. I feel like the learning part of that is, it plays a similar role. It's, you know, we're going to come up and confront a lot of different issues in any sort of understanding or moving to the left or bringing about socialism or communism or whatever, wherever somebody finds themselves on, on that political continuum. And uh, the more answers that we've already seen the 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 more like the less that we'll have to you know go through that uh you know that process of putting getting all the hands put down because they're asking basic questions that had they waited we wouldn't have to answer them in that type of way and so i think for me that's that's how i relate to it and and the whole point of this of what i'm doing in this as part of reading the revolution and what why i wanted to be a part of all this was uh, I know I, I, it, the first, I want to have the type of confidence and conviction in my principles that I've seen in some of these revolutionary writings. And I know I, c- I could blindly follow something like that, but I'm not very good at that. That's why I was <laughs> never, I never like many different groups like that never appealed to me very much. Uh, I have to understand things and uh, this has been uh, invaluable. And so like, uh, seeing that reinforced over and over in the text that I'm seeing as well, that the, the people that are passionate and have actually, you know, put their lives and uh, on the line for these causes that they believe in uh, also advocate that it's not just about feeling like it's the right thing to do. Although even though much of the stuff is very intuitive for mm-hmm. a lot of folks and, and just feels like a, an accurate analysis, it's important to actually understand it and how you get come across that understanding is different for different people. Like I said, I've said before on, the, our shows that I'm much more of an audio visual person. And so it's a lot easier for me to use the natural readers and follow along rather than just uh, sit down, uh, you know, on a chair and just read a book. Mm-hmm. And so, and uh, you know, there's also other types of presentations and other ways where you can get this type of information and you won't have a comp- You won't be a Marxist scholar without, you know, doing the work of being a Marxist scholar, but you don't need to be a Marxist scholar in order to move uh, to move the revolution forward. Right. And I think that the, you know, one of the things that he, one of the reasons I, th- you know, that he talks about the importance of understanding the fundamentals of why you fight, right. Mm-hmm. It's because in many cases, the urban gorilla is separated by circumstance from the rural gorilla, right. So in many cases, the urban gorilla could go about his or her business and not have to experience the same types of oppression that people in the rural, the rural setting have had to experience. So for him, he sees the sort of mm, knowledge through reading and becoming more familiar with other struggles around the world. He sees that as a way to bridge the gap between the urban gorilla and the, the rural gorilla. And sometimes, you know, he even, I mean, towards the end, he's kind of almost condescending a little bit about the rural gorilla, but, 
he basically, we can get to that, but he, you know, he basically says, look, like there are some people who fight because it's literally their everyday life. Like they, they're being oppressed by landowners and speculators and all of these things, people who are exploiting them very directly. They may not have time to read a book. They may not have time to engage Che Guevara or whatever, but they know why they have an understanding of the need to fight for their survival. Whereas someone in an urban setting who's you know, comparatively, comparatively privileged may not fully understand. And, and I'm saying not, not urban in the U S this is a completely separate, you know, mm-hmm. separate political and social circumstances, but the, the urban predominantly white person that he's writing to with this book, cause he's, he's living in Sao Paulo and he's writing Sao Paulo and Rio, which Sao Paulo is at the time, you know, still kind of predominantly mixed and white, not as black as the city where he was born in. Um, but you know, he, he kind of is, is point talking to people who by comparison are privileged. And so, and a lot of these people are students they are people who have access to wealth or they're people who are well-educated or who have professional regular jobs. He himself was an engineer at first, right? So he's kind of talking to people like himself who started out one way and then were radicalized by what they saw happening and saying, look, for you to have a better grasp, because I don't expect you to have the time or the ability to necessarily travel to the country and see how people live and risk getting killed yourself. But for you to make those connections, read this, read about what's happening in other countries that's very similar to what we're going through right now um, and understand how to apply it to your situation. So I think in some ways it's the, the knowledge part is about bridging a gap. It's also about making them more critical thinkers because he goes on to say that you know, the urban guerrilla has to not only be good at fighting with weapons, right? They need to know. I mean, he literally like lists, it's a laundry list. As you said, this, it, you said earlier that it would be good for BuzzFeed listicles, right? Which I thought was apt. Um, yes, it would, it would keep a BuzzFeed writer employed for at least a few months with the, all the lists in here. <laughs> Lots of listicles. And I mean, I'm, I'm tempted to make one somewhat par- like parody, but yeah <laughs> see if i get around it's, it's like every page is like a, a one through five of like what you need to know how to do with a gun what you need to know how, how to rob a bank how to do this how, but i think it's you know it's important to think about yes you have to have these these sort of physical material tactics down it's important but he also says that ultimately the military is stronger than you the government is stronger than you you have to be real about this and in mm. order to sort of combat this this difference in physical power, you have to be clever. You have to think outside the box. You have to be unpredictable. And I think that for him, reading these texts is one way to sort of increase the likelihood that you'll know how to react in a situation that you've never been in before in your life. Like these are, these are people who've been sitting pretty, you know, a lot of them. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's, I don't know. I found that, I found that to be really interesting because I think sometimes people are dismissive of the intellectual in these sorts of struggles, right? And they say, well, what's the point of an academic in a in a gunfight, you know, or like a knife fight? Uh, mm-hmm. But in this sense, I think it does sort of make you question, well, maybe there is a significance in terms of people pushing the boundaries of what they consider possible by reading what other people found possible and actually did uh, to change their environment and change their circumstances. Absolutely, yeah. And, uh the the knowledge that is going to the information and the knowledge that he expects of a gorilla is somewhat overwhelming and i think so like not only are are people that want to pursue uh, something along those lines uh going to have to 
learn a lot about the theory and the understanding of the underpinnings of what's going on. There's, uh, as we mentioned before, there's lots of lists about the very practical things as far as uh, committing to uh, the type of warfare. And it's important also to know that the enemy is studying, you know, it's like you go to West Point and they're studying battle tactics down to, you know, uh, throughout history and entire disciplines dedicated to understanding how uh, conflicts uh, work out both at the micro scale and of individual, uh, you know, confrontations to the larger scale uh, war long term. And so it's it, there's so, there's a lot of responsibility placed. And he mentions there's a quote about the tremendous cost of the Revolutionary War must fall upon the big businesses, on the imperialists, on the large landowners and on the government, speaking more towards the expropriating of resources. But uh, the reality is, is that the revolutionary is also going to have to uh, bear some tremendous costs of the of what it's going to take both, you know, what they may have to sacrifice physically and mentally and and go through. But then also uh, just all the work that's going to have to get done just to be prepared to participate in something like being a revolutionary. Right. He has a line that right after the one you read. So we're on page seven to give people Mm -hmm. like a little, if you're reading the version that we linked, um, this is on page seven where he talks about the cost of the revolutionary uh, war. But then he also at the bottom of that, like a little bit under, he says, this is the reason why the urban guerrilla uses armed struggle and why he continues to concentrate his efforts on the physical extermination of the agents of repression and to dedicate 24 hours a day to expropriations for the people's exploiters. Um, he also has a section on page six where he says your main objective um, as a or your main two objectives of, as an urban guerrilla are. Um, not just to be some dude who fights with weapons, right? He says, like, your job is not just to fight with weapons. He says, your main objectives are, one, to physically eliminate the leaders and assistants of the armed forces and the police. So he's talking literally, of, in this case, about um, not only armed combat in terms of killing police and military officials who are oppressing people actively, but also kind of thinking about the institution, like tearing down, being part of the act of tearing down this institution. Um, but then he also says, the expropriation of government resources and wealth belonging to rich businessmen, landowners, imperialists, et cetera. So he's, at this point, he's talking about redistribution of wealth, right? Mm-hmm. Um, he's not just saying, like, go kill people, which I think some, for those who are reading this, you might look at it at first glance and say, oh, this is just all about committing acts of physical violence. He's saying, no, 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 no. Not, we're not just talking. That's, that's like the, that's, that's what you get in the chief seats, right? He's mm-hmm. saying, like, the, <laughs> the bigger on, like, Full court, maybe I'm thinking of the Cavaliers game here, um, but he's the front, <laughs> the front row. You can feel the sweat of the players. The main crux of what I'm getting at is talking about taking away wealth from those who exploit the the their their position, right? Um, and how can we redistribute that wealth? How can we, at every time we rob a bank, how can we use that money? Every time we we rob a military facility, every time we take over this place or that place. How can we use those resources to then continue to aid the struggle that will eventually break down the forces that oppress us and redistribute the power and the wealth that they possess and lord over us with, right? So it's a very, there's there's an underside of it that I think sometimes, sometimes people miss and they glorify the violence part, but then they don't get around to the, like, you got to also give back stuff. <laughs> like you have to expert, you have to take what's theirs and give it back. 
Um, yeah. Uh, earlier you mentioned like, you know, it has how to rob a bank in here. And it's like, <laughs> I'm sure that for some people's ears, like, wait a minute. <laughs> like, right. Yeah. yeah. I know right. I got interested. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Although it is important to note that um, this is written in 1969 or yes. like in the, sorry, in the 60s. So um, there's some things that have changed, but. A little bit, but yeah. yeah. So like, yeah. So it's, it, you don't want to necessarily transpose some of these t- things directly and uh, try and think that you're going to be effective, uh, particularly on some like those. And maybe some of like, ho- uh, you know, police on horses aren't as popular anymore. So some right. of those tactics may be less, less applicable, but. Yeah. Yeah, I think also just like I just want to say as a disclaimer for anyone listening to this, please don't like go rob a bank and then say I heard this on um yeah. left key the left pocket project podcast on uh, they were supporting it. No, that's no. not what we're saying. We're saying no. that the fundamentals of what he's talking about in terms of redistribution of wealth, the right to defend yourself if you're being literally oppressed, like all these things, I think are important and we'll get to their modern day application later but i just i hate to say it but i have to put out disclaimers because i can already imagine people being like mm-hmm. well wendy said or well richard <laughs> said and i'm like no i didn't <laughs> yeah just, just assume you know like none of the none of the guys say don't don't put that don't put that on wendy's or something <laughs> i get carried away and, and not careful with the words and so <laughs> just assume but, if i say something that wild she stepped away from it <laughs> <laughs> but this is i mean carlos unfortunately is no longer with us he was actually murdered by police police um but i think it is important to note that it is, it is what he said and it is mm-hmm. important to for him to have credit in the sense that he's he's one of the i mean at the time that he's writing this um he had recently separated from the communist party of brazil and he separated because he said their tactics at the time were just in pursuance of peace they just thought well we'll do this passively right we're not we're, we're going to use the we're going to be pacifists we're not going to fight back and meanwhile, people who are literally communists themselves, members of the Communist Party, are being murdered by the police, by by these military groups, by militias. So it's like, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to just be there sitting ducks, right? Um, and that's what ultimately kind of made him separate himself and form this separate group. Um, and then to write things like he writes. So I think it's, again, it's it's a moment in time um, and a, you know, a place where things are happening that are very serious and on a very large scale. Um, and you know, to, to remember that and to give him credit for, he had a right to respond in this way. And he has a right to, even though it may seem cold to us and almost unreasonable on some levels. Um, I think that he was, he was justified in, in pushing for a fight, you know, and, and to fight back and, um, to survive. So, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> the, the, the alleged leaders of, you know, freedom and democracy that, you know, you would hope would be coming in with the cavalry were already there and on the other side of that fight. And so it's uh, I, I can totally understand uh, and sympathize with why uh, violence would seem to be the only alternative, even though, you know, generally, at least ideologically, I like to think of myself more towards leaning towards pacifism. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think this. uh I mean, also learning what I've been learning as well has uh, colored that slightly, but the the justification for uh, violent defense, I think, uh, is clear, particularly the more you understand about the historical context, especially when you get it from somebody like Wendy, as opposed to some, you know, U.S. propaganda outlet. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for that. I appreciate that I'm a little bit better than the U.S. propaganda outlet, so <laughs> <laughs> much. rest my shoulders off there. Thanks so much, Richard. Uh, <laughs> 
So going back to the mini manual, he spends a lot of time in the middle here um, in the teen pages, teens and 20s, talking about the, you know, physical, physical side of things, the material side of things. He talks about um, different forms of warfare. He talks about, you know, the forms, the, the, the tactics that you have to take up as an urban guerrilla. You have to be knowledgeable of the, the city layout, the terrain, the transportation systems, um, the different types of logistic options that you have. You have to be aware of different types of explosive guns, weapons. All, it's just, it's, it's a lot. Like it's, it's like, do you feel stressed out? Don't read this. Cause you're going to feel overwhelmed. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. If you want to really fight power, what you have to learn according to him. Um, but you know, when I was reading this, I saw it as, you know, in some ways, in some ways, I think that um, he puts a lot out there and hopes that there's, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I, I, I kind of saw it as if you remember when maybe when you were younger, like in middle school or high school, and you learn about these parables or like stories that they would have, you know, a main character who was supposed to represent something in the society. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's this there's this idea of the everyman, like this person is supposed to represent the average citizen or the average person going through something. And then there are all these characters who are like sin and beauty and love whatever mm-hmm. um they're from like the medieval times <laughs> it's a long time ago but and in the bible too i think a lot of a lot of like older tales you know that you read have characters that represent one aspect or another of society and then they're supposed to get a lesson from it and i read this book sort of like that i don't think that he expects the average person who's involved <laughs> in in these sorts of things to know all of this stuff i mean it's a lot there are maybe some idiot savants out there, or not even not excuse me, not idiot savant geniuses. <laughs> That's a better way to gene because you have to know everything. A mm-hmm. genius who can, who's physically strong, who knows how to use a gun, who knows all the city layout where he or she is, who knows all the revolutionary history of that particular place, who can easily spot allies. Like it's just, it's a lot. Who can run really fast? Like the, the, maybe that you know, the <laughs> stockpile of Antifa super soldiers, you know? Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or black identity extremists who've been well-trained, uh, quote-unquote. But, you know, I, I saw it more as like, a you should at least be good at some of these things. If you can't do yeah. it all, be good at some of it. And he does sort of, as the, as the, as he goes along, he kind of talks about the place of certain people, right? And he says, you know, like, for example, intellectuals or writers, write, you know, like, do what you're good at. Find your Find the thing that you're good at, employ that tactic and stick to it as much as you can. But also be ready to pick up a gun if you have to, or also be ready to, if you're, if you're a marksman, be ready to engage in some sort of propaganda at some point, right? Um, so I think it's, it's less about like, you have to know how to do everything and more like, you have to pick some of these things and know how to do them well, and then be able to operate on the fly if you have to, to engage in something that maybe isn't your strong suit. Yeah, um, exactly. That there's going to be these are the types of thing knowledge knowledge bases that you'll encounter in in this struggle, and the more of them that you have built on, the more prepared you're going to be. And like, and you you're probably not going to get all of them. You're not going to you know become an expert you know uh, navigator on ships, and also you know learn how to uh, the most proficient art or uh, you know shooter, and learn how to use artillery well. And but some basic level of most of the skills it, that the more you compile, the better as how I viewed it as well. Yeah, definitely. And I think too, that in some areas where he starts to kind of drill down, those are the areas that I found most compelling um, and persuasive mm-hmm. for myself personally. Um, for example, when he talks about 
the significance of information and how that can be used. Um, he says, for example, that the chances that the government has for discovering and destroying the urban guerrilla or urban guerrillas lessens as the power of the dictatorship's enemies becomes greater and more concentrated among the population. So basically, and he, he talks about this a lot in terms of the, the armed response as well. He says like, the more people you have doing this, the better. Um, the more people you have for them to fight and to confuse the situation against the government, right? To, to make the government be split up in multiple areas or make the police have to go in multiple areas for the fight, the better. And I think the way that he talks about information here um, makes it very clear as well that there's a very important role that people can play in terms of what they write, what they disseminate, um, and also what they gather as knowledge, right? He says that they're, on the left, um, if you're fighting a guerrilla struggle, there, should, there has to be a creation of an intelligence service, he says, with an organized mm -hmm. structure. That's a basic need. Like you have, to have, you have to have a deep understanding of what the military and what the police are doing. And I think this is why it's so important to, um, like there, there are people during this time, there's a general named Lamarca who's discussed at the end of this text in the aftermath. Um, but, you know, there are people who were in the military who were engaging in helping the left and in helping these groups. So it's nice to have someone on the ends. It's kind of this this long term debate about inside outside. Right. Um, mm -hmm. That's a good example of why you kind of need someone on the inside, too, to know what's going on to help with the outside. Yeah, it becomes a, he mentions the value, you know, and how powerful and important it is. And like, the reliable information passed on to the guerrillas represents a well-named blow at the dictatorship. And that, uh, you know, the leaking of information has multiple like multiple effects. Not only is it, you know, powerfully used for the the targeted action itself, but just the fact that the information is leaking becomes an issue, and, and as we see in other issue, other situations, and I think it he captures that well there. Yeah, he definitely. I mean, I think this line about leaking is important too, like how you can use that to your advantage. Um, again, with someone on the inside. But there, so I'm <laughs> laughing because I'm about to get to a part that I'm like, mm, I don't know, Carlos. Uh, but he <laughs> says, he says, he starts talking about uh, that. There's a duty of the urban guerrilla that he cannot evade. Um, and that's, quote, once he knows who the spy or informer is right, on the inside, he has to physically wipe him out. This is the proper method approved by the people, and it minimizes considerably the incidence of infiltration or enemy spying. So this is on, I'm going to give you guys the page number, page 18. Um, and it's followed by, <laughs> after he talks about this, it's followed by a section on decisiveness. So, like, don't, if you shoot the informant in the head, don't doubt yourself, okay? Um, so, this is the part where I was like, mm, I mean, let's talk about this because it, it came, yeah. like, I was, I was on board and I'm like reading and I'm like, okay, yeah, like, I got it. You know, I understand why you would have to rob a bank or do this or do that or like blow up a military barrack or whatever, right? Kind of like what we talked mm -hmm. about with history will absolve me. I mean, we've touched on this sort of role of violence uh, mm -hmm. before, but. What are your thoughts on, like, what is he saying here when he talks about, liter like, he says, sh like, shoot, shoot informants? Yeah. Does he mean that literally, or how did you take that part? I don't, you know, I was, I was struggling with that a little bit myself, and I, I, I was thinking about it, and I mean, you know, he said it was, it's the method that was approved by the people. I feel like I 
probably didn't see a <laughs> referendum on that. <laughs> Vote on the 15th. Did you guys see the results? <laughs> yeah, I was like, so I mean, I was a little skeptical. And then, you know, it's just, I, I am, I'm too familiar with the fallibility of humans to like, but I don't know that there's a, a, a great solution. So I, I almost feel as though it's uh, calling for the harshest knowing that people are going to rationalize and justify but that so that there's a pressure to within it, it, for people they feel as revolutionaries to if they sincerely believe that somebody has has done something that is against their cause that falls under the list of offenses that okay. uh, that they act and uh, despite their uh, internal conflict with you know prior relationship or whatever and so uh, i i I'm not sure in like the way in which she talks about it. We talked a little bit before we came on just the, the casualness and the like it's kind of a, an authoritative and just matter of factly, I guess is the phrase I'm looking for way that he talks about it makes it seem as though uh, it it's something that it had to be addressed because it's, you know, informants and counter revolution people that are acting against you, but uh, from within the cause are so destructive that uh, you know there's a feeling that in this case you know getting it wrong uh sometimes is worth not missing the ones that you you're right about okay. and so i guess those are some of the things that crossed my mind in processing that particular section yeah i think i mean for me i read it i took it literally um <laughs> because i think he does just because of the like severity of the circumstances situation right? yeah um well. i i understood it as literal but i also it's interesting what he says right before it and i think that helps us understand his rationale so he says you know that the urban guerrillas technique against this and en the enemy tactic of having infiltrators and spies is quote to denounce publicly the spies traitors informants and provocateurs so on the one hand you have to let it be known like this person mm -hmm. has been betraying our cause and then whatever happens to you happens to you right so that's like one one approach where you're not you're not necessarily pulling the trigger but you're saying someone else might and it ain't my problem like you know like <laughs> i i called him out and whatever happens to you is your own shit you know like you did this you brought this on yourself um but then i think what he says after that is is what I think makes this what he says that seems so harsh. It kind of lightens it a bit because he says, quote, since our struggle takes place among the people and depends on their sympathy, while the government has a bad reputation because of its brutality, corruption and incompetence, the informers, spies, traitors and the police come to be enemies of the people without supporters denounced to the urban guerrillas and in many cases properly punished. So it's almost like he's saying look, ultimately someone who is an informant and is a spy or who does things against the cause intentionally um, is someone who wasn't for the people in the first place, right? And mm -hmm. it was someone who belongs with the rest of the people that we're against. So they're, they're part of the regime that is physically and mentally, emotionally, economically harming us. And I think that, I don't know, I, I, I get where he's coming from I personally doesn't matter what I personally think, to be honest. I mean, I'm just it doesn't matter what I think um, in this case. But I think that there's a I'm just like, it doesn't matter what I think. And now I'm going to tell you what I think. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that it's great that he does at least sort of he he couches this in a lot of discussions about the ultimate causes for the people. It's not about individuals. Right. It's not about mm -hmm. it's not about seeing this 
this informer as an individual person who betrayed the cause. It's about seeing him or her as part of a system that betrays the people, um, which is a different kind of approach to to this sort of thing. And that the people are the judge, you know, and that mm-hmm. they, they ultimately are the ones that are going to determine whether the it's the, the actions are in their interest or not. And so I think the sincerity and, you know, like, essentially, I think part of the whole public denunciation also is that then someone like once that denunciation is made, then people start to analyze, you know, situations and they come to their own conclusions about whether that makes sense or not. And then somebody acts, you know, mm-hmm. and it's it's non-centralized. It's just somebody takes on as their responsibility to, you know, to to do what needs to get done in order to protect the people. Right. I felt a lot like, I mean, for those of you who watch TV, I'm, I'm, I watch TV. It's like always on in the background. I'm not necessarily paying attention, but it's always on. <laughs> but when I was reading this, I was reminded a lot of um, what you see on the Americans. So the Americans is a highly problematic show. And I'm sure even more so for people who actually study the Soviet Union and who, um, you know, focus on, on the U S and USSR um, issues during the cold war. So, you know, take this as a grain of salt. But one of the things that's interesting about the show is that the the characters, the main characters in it are spies for the USSR. And they engage in these seemingly, you know, when you see them acting, it's like cold-blooded actions, right? They they have to eliminate people sometimes. If there's if there's anyone who is found out or who's been you know, found out as someone who betrayed the cause, they have to kill them because they're always a risk. And I think that, you know, when you see when you see it written out here, it, t- it really, it really sort of takes what you see in sort of fictional betray, fictional portrayals, excuse me, um, and shows them happening in real life. And you say, God, can you imagine being put in a position where you have to choose what you're going to do um, when you're dealing with someone who has betrayed your cause or who's who's you know ratted mm-hmm. people out or who's spying on you on the behest of a government that's actively, physically, emotionally, mentally you know, economically oppressing you. It's kind of, I think it, it, it changes the way we think about even stuff that we see in more fictional, um, mm-hmm. fictional portrayals that we just kind of take lightly. We're like, Oh yeah, of course it's a spy movie. So people are going to get, but this, these are things that like people had to think about and weigh against their own personal ethics and wonder, you know, what would you do in your, in that situation? How would you rationalize it? If at all? Yeah, um, no. And, uh, like, I I'm somebody that relates a lot of things back to uh, various types of uh, entertainment programs and stuff like that. And so uh, without diving too far into that, I think it's uh, one of the things that I think they're good at. I mean, they can give you a lot of bad ideas about how things work or so on and so forth, <laughs> but like one yes. of the things that I think they can do reasonably well is bring, like you said, that question to your mind, you know, what would I do in like the, the moral and ethical aspects of those questions uh, putting aside some of the pr- more, you know, imaginative, practical aspects, but just, you know, this is a tough moral decision. And like, what kind of things would, how would, what kind of things would I be using to assess my action? How would I, how would I behave? How would I judge myself afterwards? You know, and uh, there's a lot, uh, I, I've, we'll maybe get a chance to talk about it in the later half of the show, uh, just some of the shows and how those, chan- those questions and this material has been relating for me, especially, but I, that's a point I, I really, I, I got a little bit of too, and I'm glad that you mentioned it. Yeah. And I think too, what you mentioned just now is this idea of like your own personal morals. Right. And one of the things that I think this text does very well is even though it's not stated explicitly, but it sort of tells us to remove the moral question 
to remove the moral question and wonder instead on a systemic level, Mm -hmm. you know, this X group is oppressing other people. That's a fact. That's a fundamental basis upon which I am acting as opposed to saying this is good, this is bad. And then worrying so much about normal understandings of who's good, who's bad, who's, who's the good guys, who's the bad guys, you know, who's the enemy, who's the protagonist. It's more of a question of like, X group is doing X damage to another group. And this is how I have to respond to that if I want to defend the rights of that group. Not because my God tells me so, or not because I personally feel like it's it's necessary or I feel good about doing it, but because it's it's something that will stabilize the country in which I live. Um, I think it takes on a kind of almost, it takes away a lot of the moral questions. And I guess you have to, if you're telling someone, pick up a gun and defend yourself. It, it, he's asking us to kind of set the moral question aside and think about this in a systemic level. Think about imperialism. Think about, you know, the the, the social structure in yeah, which yeah, it's it's really like an expansion of the morality beyond the individual situation to mm-hmm. to the greater good, like greater aspects of society at large, and that can be dangerous. As we like, I mean, just saying it, you can think of mm-hmm. how that that's been manipulated or used for uh, uh bad causes but i think something it, like the theories and such behind the socialism communism and revolutions like those theories and those ideas there's definitely even the best ones are you're going to be able to apply them both negatively and positively whether like it's the internet or anything any other tool you can use the tool in a variety of ways. Uh, mm-hmm. And so the inherent nature of the tool or the morality of the tool is a kind of a secondary question to the way the tool is being applied. Right. I agree. I agree. Um, so before we get to the discussion of contemporary application and comparable issues, I just wanted to run down quickly of uh, some of the issues that he touches on. I'm just going to do this really quickly as sort of a point by point thing. And it gets a little bit repetitive. So if you're reading this, I would suggest like read the read the intro or the dedication, then read a couple pages, go do something, come back to it, keep reading, you know. And because it gets very, as you said, it's like a listicle. It's all it's it's basically a lot of lists um, with some. There's definitely some theoretical meat in there. Don't get me wrong. Uh, there's mm-hmm. a lot actually, but I think you know if the way he wrote it, it's in these sections that you can like read a paragraph and then go do something, come back, think about it, read another paragraph. And you can kind of skip around as well. Um, but he goes on to discuss, as I mentioned, you know, we just, we left off in talking about the role of information and the importance of having like a left and urban guerrilla network of sorts for information and sharing of information. But then he talks about tactics a lot. Um, he talks about the role of an ur- like the role of urban guerrillas in demonstrations. He talks about work uh, work stoppages and strikes, desertions, diversions and seizures, execution, assaults. And when he says assaults again, it's not about man to man like combat. It's about um, you know take, robbing banks and things like that um, and taking weapons and funds. Um, so yeah, execution, kidnapping. And also, again, important to note here, not kidnapping of everyday citizens. So in Brazil, one of the things that was popular during this time um, is that they would kidnap government officials from other countries as a means of propaganda. So they would uh, they would kidnap someone. They wouldn't abuse the person. They would just kidnap and hold him or her um, and then ask for ransom and then kind of make it a public thing. 
So to say, look, if you don't grant us these people who are imprisoned under the military regime, who were like, you know, guerrilla fighters themselves that they wanted back, kind of like a like a, an, a prisoner of war trade, basically, is mm-hmm. what they would do it for. Um, they weren't just kidnapping random, <laughs> random people off the street. <laughs> um, sabotage. And by that, he also talks about not just um, sabotage in terms of individuals, but also sabotage in terms of systems. That, invo- that also involves uh, destruction of property through violence or through, through violent acts. Uh, armed propaganda, which again is the use of, of these sort of acts of assault to then turn them into ways to get the general population on your side. Um, propaganda in print, which was my personal favorite section because I, mm-hmm. I am always like, I will be the one behind the, the screen typing uh, during the revolution. <laughs> uh, <laughs> he also talks about psychological warfare, which uh, is interesting as well because he kind of turned, again, it's an example of him turning it on his head. Normally when we think of psyops, we think of like the government engaging in psychological warfare. But in this case, he's talking about ways that uh, urban, the urban guerrilla can confuse and distort what the government relies on in its own propaganda to then kind of change the narrative um, and to, to kind of, I don't know, he, he, he mentions here, and I think this is also really specific to the time period, but he talks about how the, you can use uh, the government's claims uh, or the government's problems of censorship to its advantage, your, to your own advantage. Mm-hmm. So in the normal, like in the present day, we talk, we see a lot of like, the government engaging in its own psyops and using the press to put out false information and to distort the narrative on its own. It kind of like changes, it misdirects a lot and puts out disinformation. Um, but at this time, the government was responding more with censorship. So the Brazilian government uh, was literally like not allowing people to print things or it would like take out whole chunks. They had like commissions where they would go through articles and take out whole chunks of articles before publishing them, et cetera. So what he's saying is to counter that by putting out the actual information um, and changing the narrative toward the, to the benefit of the revolutionary. Um, he also, this is something else that I thought was interesting. And then I'll get to one more section and you can try and feel free to chime in here. Mm-hmm. Um, he talks about the significance of medical knowledge and never abandoning a comrade, which I thought mm-hmm. was great. Like he's like, at least have some basic ass first aid. Um, if you're going to be an airman, you're like, know how to like, know how to take a bullet out, know how to wrap an arm, you know, whatever. Um, but also if you notice that somebody's hurt, don't leave them um, to die, like help them. But the thing that I think that I would like to hear from you about is the section on the seven sins of the urban gorilla. Uh, and I think this can help us kind of transition into contemporary application. So um, I'm just going to tell everyone what page that is on for those of you who want to read the the copy we have. It's on page 35 where he starts talking about the seven sins of the urban gorilla. So let's talk about that. He says, there's no perfect urban gorilla. Well, good to know. <laughs> Thank goodness. I'm like, damn, you got to know a lot of stuff. Um, right. Yeah, that was, that was relieving. <laughs> yeah, I was like, yeah, good. Uh, the most he can do is make every effort to diminish the margin of error so he, since he cannot be perfect. Okay, so these are the seven things that one should avoid uh, if he wants to get as close to perfect as possible. So let's talk about those. Yes, the seven sins of the urban gorilla. And uh, I think the first sin is one that we've talked about a bit and uh, talked uh, kind of uh, about in general is the, he refers to it as the sin of inexperience. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that that speaks to both the knowledge and understanding of 
uh, your situation and the tactics uh, of both your enemy and understanding what tactics and advantages you have, uh, but also just, you know, simple uh, mistakes that people make because they've just not been in these types of situations. And so even if they know what they're supposed to do, it's not instinctual or habit as it uh, needs to be in order to be successful uh, over the long term. Right. And one thing I think he that's interesting in this section that he mentions that I was like, yeah, exactly. He says, like, don't underestimate the enemy's intelligence and -hmm. don't assume that everything is easy. And that is super important because I think sometimes we look at people like, you know, Trump or Republicans in general. I think there's a lot of like the yes, there's anti-intellectualism on the Republican side, like no doubt. But I think a lot of people assume that Republicans are just like stupid and don't know what they're doing. And in the in reality, like. They seem to be doing just fine, like destroying, <laughs> destroying yeah, right? things, you know, and then liberals too, not just, but I'm saying in, in particular, in terms of liberal rhetoric about Republicans, it's mm-hmm. often one that sort of emphasizes how stupid they are. Meanwhile, they're passing bill after bill, you know, act and after act after act that's like dismantling our rights. And I'm like, okay, y'all, maybe we should get off this whole, like, let's laugh at them and instead work about like try to figure out how to fight them like yeah i'm reminded uh, of the, the, what is that newsroom opening where you know it's like if you're so smart why do you lose always right <laughs> yeah because <laughs> yeah. we're so good at this and they're so bad why do you keep losing right. <laughs> like, right. it's not making your case better like and then yeah. and then you know the implicit uh explanation is well it's it's because there's too many stupid people that agree with the other stupid people <laughs> <laughs> like that's that's the entirety of the problem it's like well that's that's not going to win you much support either no but uh, i think the next two sins the second and third sin uh are there's a lot of overlap and then also i think in could happen as a result of trying to follow what's in the manual as far as using uh actions as propaganda it's mm-hmm. important to that the propaganda is centered on the the purposes of what you're doing and not to gloat and he uses it as you know the urban gorilla or the second sin of the urban gorilla is to boast about the actions he has undertaken and to broadcast them to the four winds the third sin being vanity mm-hmm. and so uh it it seems counterintuitive to say oh you know you shouldn't you know broadcast your wins it's like well you need to do it but in a way that furthers the cause not in a way that is vain and shows and is trying to glorify yourself in a way that's not positive to the cause, but positive towards your own uh, emotional, you know, reaction to how people view you. Right. I mean, it's interesting because this entire text, it seems one of the things I took when I was reading it, it seemed like the urban gorilla is like acting alone all the time. Right. Like there's mm-hmm. hardly any, I mean, he has, he has these sections where he talks about having the firing groups and like the, the training groups, little mini sort of, learn how to use a rifle, learn how to use this kind of weapon and like plan certain attacks, but then disband. He has, he goes into that a bit, which we can talk about later, but I think that throughout I felt it was, what is that? Hello? Yeah. Okay. I heard like weird feedback. I guess the government's listening to us and asking, they're talking about violence. Um, I should just keep uh-huh. that in. Cause. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, no, but I, you know, so he he talked when I was reading it, I just I felt like a lot of it was like I felt like the urban gorilla was literally operating on his or her own a lot. Like I felt I felt like as reading this, I was like isolating myself. You know, like, oh, I have to do if I'm going to be an urban gorilla, I have to like act alone a lot because it's hard to trust people. And 
you know, like you have to, you have to get all this knowledge, but then like, how do you work with others? And when I got to the sins part, and he talks about not busting about the actions, like, it seems like sometimes if you're not on the underground side of it, how are you going to know who's engaging with this in these acts? And I think he also talks a lot about like confusion, right? How like criminals can confuse the situation and the government itself can confuse the situation. There are all sorts of people who act as like saboteurs on the government side too. So it makes people unsure of who's engaging in the act and why. And I think in some ways, the second sin about not boasting about your actions is it has an underside that is like counterproductive too, because then you don't know who did it. Like you don't have anyone claiming mm-hmm. the action. And so you don't know if it's good or bad or from what side did, you know, it's just kind of unclear. Um, and I, but I think it's a good one as well because, and this takes us to the fourth sin about not exaggerating your strength. Um, mm-hmm. Because again, it reminds us like, don't get, basically don't get too cocky, right? Like don't get too comfortable, never get comfortable, never get cocky. Don't assume that you've already won the fight. And it reminds me of what Lamont Lilly, who's um, who ran as vice president under the Worker, Workers World Party in the 2016 election, Um, It's a left party um, based in the U.S. and has affiliates around the world. Um, But he mentioned the other day on Twitter, you know, he said, look, like there are all these black revolutionaries right now who are getting killed. And, you know, we have to be really careful not to broadcast what we're doing. Um, And if we want to survive in any circumstance, there has to be a level of being clandestine about stuff and being silent, you know, knowing how to how to walk strong, but in silence sometimes. And I think that it's good advice, especially, you know, as we see more and more crackdowns in this country and longstanding crackdowns in other countries, although here too, I mean, I'm not, I'm, I'm obviously, I'm not saying it's a new thing to crack down on black revolutionaries in the U S. But I think at least about it getting public, like people understanding it in the public, right. That this is a common practice in this country. You know, I think it's very good advice. It's, it's good advice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I think there's a very tactical reason also uh, regarding the force. And is if you exaggerate your strength, and then the the tyrants are able to strike a blow, it becomes that much more significant when mm-hmm. than if if you were viewed as being uh, weaker than you truly are, and then you overcome something that they thought was supposed to you know overwhelm you. And right. so there's a very there's a tactical aspect to that as well that I think is important. And then he um on the fifth fifth six i think fifth six and seven they can kind of be grouped in little pods uh but five six and seven are also comparable to those last three but work together as well he says the fifth there's sin, a little stretch going on there to get a good number <laughs> there's a whole what a little stretching going on there to get a good yeah, number yeah, that's yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah it could have been like two sins but um <laughs> but the fifth sin is to not act in rash action the sixth is to attack the, not to attack the enemy when they're most angry you want to attack them obviously when things are calm to surprise right um and then the seventh sin is to fail to plan things which sounds like me talking to my husband where I'm like, you didn't plan this. What do you think? Like, what are you doing? Right. It's, it's very much like, a, it sounds like, I feel like Carlos is like my mom or like, like me. <laughs> Why didn't you plan this? This is why everything's messed up. Cause you didn't plan, you know, this has got to take some time and like write it down. And so, Just wanted to get it started though. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like complicated because you can't have any, you can't have uh like 
You can't have evidence of what you're doing. You have to operate clandestinely. You can't make any friends. You can't trust anybody. But then you also can't plan anything. (laughs) (laughs) So, like, what are you supposed to do? Yeah, and you need everybody to know what you're doing to join the cause and, like, to get motivated. But then it's very... It's very there's a there's it, it's this this manual and from the intro all the way through the end speaks very much to that conflict of, yeah. of the urban guerrilla or even in the revolutionary in general uh, of, you know, I've got to rally people to my cause without people knowing I'm doing that. You're right. <laughs> like, and you have to put out propaganda with, with no no footprints, no fingerprints like. Yes, and like, and I have to lay claim to this in order so that people know, you know, like who's responsible, but also not take any responsibility as to not be have it traced. It's it's a conflict, and I I, I imagine uh, in the future in points we'll we'll see this reflected in other texts and see how other uh, guerrillas or revolutionaries uh, answered that question. And uh, I'm looking forward to those as well. But this Carlos definitely, you know, has his way, and uh, you know. It, it um, um, undoubtedly cost him his life or you know related to it and it, the that's in the propaganda uh episode from last time it was they made there's a point about understanding what's on the line and what what's at risk and and being honest and real and so i think uh you know the people that you know you're fighting against have a have a lot on the line on their side as well and they're very fond of it and so as as much as you know any revolutionary or uh, guerrilla seeks freedom from the oppression and tyranny the the tyrants seek to preserve it and uh, all all the information like that you see in this manual and the tactics that you see they they it's a two-way street and many of them can be used both ways and one of the points that he makes is it's important for the guerrilla to note in which ways are they uh, do they have an advantage over the enemy? And uh, the one that I think uh, we may, didn't cover as much, but it was definitely stressed throughout the book was the mobility. And so I think that also plays a role with the the kind of the alone aspect where basically the only grouping is this intelligence service that isn't exactly, you know, clearly laid out how something like that would function. And right. then uh, with these kinds of restrictions and then the firing groups, but outside of that, it is very, a very uh, a lonely type of uh, description. It sounds like, and the mobility, I think, is part of that. You know, you have to constantly be on the move and constantly, you know, attack and withdraw immediately. You know, it, it's about use that the fact that you know you're one or five people or some somewhere in between versus this massive force. But the massive force has, can only be in so many places and so many times. And so take take advantage of that and and move and strike where you're not expecting and because and that's what and when he talks about terrorism as well that that plays into that is the the type of terrorism that he's talking about as well is you know making the people that the tyrants uncomfortable essentially making mm-hmm. the people especially lower down on on the in the chain of the uh, tyranny making it less comfortable for them to be on that side. You know, taking away the security and the comfort that they have uh, under the system as it has existed and making, taking and and terrorizing them in that way. And I think so that, you know, it becomes more uh, 
appealing for them to you know it's like maybe deserting and going with the revolutionaries or at least even just sitting on the sidelines and not harming the revolutionaries sounds like a better living than defending you know having to worry about getting shot standing in front of an ammo you know dump like or have a blow up behind you right that that having that kind of those conflicts within the the opposing force is a valuable tool and uh, the mobility and the the individualness uh, helps in that regard Yeah, I mean, I think this is important, right? It's again, it goes back to this idea of propaganda. Like, how could can this can this propaganda reach the people who are tools of power? You know, and like, what do you? What's the? What are the tactics for that as well? Um, can it be influential? Because I think, in, I mean, I don't know. I go back and forth, and I think violence works in really mysterious ways. Sometimes, on the one hand, I think it can help definitely, like, make people realize, oh like what's happening is wrong, you know, like put property destruction more, more so than physical violence. Mm -hmm. But I think that, you know, property destruction makes people sometimes say, why'd you guys have to go and burn down the CVS? You know, like we use that CVS and there there becomes all these sorts of like defenses for the CVS as opposed to the people being shot to death. But then Mm -hmm. on the other hand, you have people who are like looking at this and saying, Oh my God, you guys are crying about a CVS and not about the people that were like murdered maybe we should rethink our priorities, right? So it can work both ways. And I think um, on the general populace, but I think it can also, it also has like multiple facets on, it, it works in mysterious ways on on people who are object or like tools of power as well. And mm-hmm. I don't know, I never, when I was reading this, I didn't get the sense of like how exactly to capture them. I understood how to capture the public, right? The general public mm-hmm. I got. But then it's like, how do you get people on the inside? How do you break down that propaganda? Because they're like highly, highly brainwashed, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, the people, the people, the general public is constantly brainwashed too. But people who, I mean, I saw the other, like yesterday, there was a uh, black military member at uh, Fort Hamilton, I think it was in Brooklyn. It was like a military base or like a training facility in Brooklyn that normally gets pizza delivered. And the black military guy called ice on the pizza delivery man. Who's Hispanic, like mm-hmm. not black, but he's, just, he's, he's a non-black Hispanic um, person. And, you know, I said to myself, like, wow, like these are two people who, I mean, I don't know anything about the, the military member, the, the officer, but mm-hmm. I, I mean, I'm just like, you're black, you're oppressed in this country on the basis of being black. Um, so maybe we would do better off, like not calling ice. Cause I, you know, like, I don't yeah. know. I just, I, it, it's, it's, I, it's, it made me so frustrated that I didn't even know how to properly articulate the basis of like the, the background here for me of my frustration, but mm-hmm. like it, it pains me more than anything to see people who are constantly oppressed by empire, who are constantly impre- oppressed by systems, then becoming members of those systems and then using those systems or serving themselves as tools in that system against other people who are oppressed in that system. And I know that's what the system itself wants. People in power want that kind of behavior, but -hmm. it just makes me all the more sad that like we have, we're at the point now where we have black people, black, black U S Americans calling the police on people from other countries or calling ice on other countries. And then you have people who are immigrants, you know, calling the police on black people or whatever, like fill in the blank. Mm -hmm. There's just a lot of weird strife that I think, when I was reading this, I was like, how do we get to the person who's oppressed, but who's a part of a system that actively oppresses others? How do we get to that? What's what's the revolutionary act 
that's going to influence that person to change their mind. Yeah, and that that has been, I think, a persistent question even before I started uh, learning about more revolutionary ideologies. Just you know, how do you get to the people that, while they you know they they suffer some oppressions as a result of some of some systems or uh, other things, but materially and then and in their reality, uh, they benefit from that impression as well, and Mm -hmm. that they can't see a reality outside of that where you know it, things aren't worse for them and and understanding why that could ever be possibly what's right you know like even a billionaire can't imagine how only having a hundred million dollars would be more righteous than how the situation as it is and and that's a challenge that's a challenge that i've been looking for answers i haven't found it in most of the stuff that i've found that i've read in general uh but uh the revolutionary texts i've seen have started to seems to challenge and address some of that but i haven't really seen that answered uh well yet so I, i'm looking for I'm, I'm keep looking and if anybody has any ideas or recommendations feel free to send them my way uh but that's a tough question and it's i i i don't have an answer yeah i'm and i i you know i mean again this is I, just one I, text but it doesn't have it's not gonna have all the answers i don't expect it to but of course, yeah, no, and but it, it seems like an important question. I think, you know, the way or the how uh, Carlos is able to get around it is uh, because of the immediacy of the issues at hand. Mm-hmm. You know, it's when people are disappearing off the streets, and the the people that you've uh, put into your this shell of a government are being you know executed and disappeared. Then uh, you're you're in a very tough spot, and so uh, your options are limited and. Uh, I think, you know, the, to the best, the, the best answer that I got out of this particular text regarding that is uh, you have to try and change that reality so that it's not comfortable for them. And they're not, you know, that so when challenged, you know, the regime says this is the way you're, you, you want your life to stay like this, that their reality challenges that that assertion that I'd actually don't like this. This is scary and painful and all and the negative associations that would come with being, you know, defending the regime against a, a revolutionary army. Mm-hmm. I think, um, so going back a little bit, I'm going to switch gears just a tad, because um, we kind of, we started to kind of talk about the problems of the work, or at least not necessarily problems, but some questions that it left us with. Um, mm-hmm. One of the things I thought was interesting, too, that kind of introduced some questions for me or thoughts on, you know, where he's coming from here. Um, he talks about the, he sets up he says that there are basically three fronts. And I think this kind of starts to sort of answer the question that we were just talking about. Um, But he talks about three fronts in a revolutionary struggle that they're trying to kind of mobilize and potentially influence and then have work with them. Um, And one of them is the guerrilla front. One is the mass front and one is the support network. Um, And when the mass front, uh, he talks a lot about students and demonstrators in both city and rural situations. Then when he starts talking about the support network, he says that this is for, he says, the great logistics front behind the Brazilian revolution. Um, so revolutionary support groups and um, groups that, like, I guess the firing groups, if you will, like these sort of individual groups that are training um, others. And that also overlaps with the guerrilla front. So whatever. But he's saying that these are people, for example, who will house guerrillas, who will feed guerrillas, who will supply information artillery, et cetera, if they're lacking or needing some of these things, fine. Um, But when he was talking about these fronts, 
again, I think, I don't know. I, this and then a later section um, where he talks a bit about the rural side versus the urban side. He talks about the need for urban and and rural guerrillas to work together and primarily for the urban guerrilla to recognize that his place or her place in the struggle is to ultimately do stuff in the city that confuses and distracts and takes the energies from the government and the military in order to sort of decrease the violence that's happening on the rural front. Um, and then also to then act as sort of a liaison of sorts between the people who are the working peasants and things like that on the rural side and those who are in the urban centers, um, which I thought was fine, whatever. But I felt like at some points he kind of, I didn't know what to take of his characterization of the rural guerrilla. And I think in some cases it seems like he, he saw them primarily as responding to their immediate circumstances, but not doing much more than that and not necessarily having the kind of mental wherewithal to radicalize on their own. I don't know. I mean, what did you think? I, and I can, of course I can't find the exact line right now because this is always what happens whenever I'm re I like highlight something and then I lose it. Yeah. I mean, it, uh, he, I guess the part of in, when he talks about the first sin of inexperience, he mentions blinded by success, he winds up organizing an action that he considers decisive and puts into play the entire resources of the organization. And then says, since we cannot afford to break the guerrilla struggle in the cities while rural guerrilla warfare has not yet erupted, we always run the risk of allowing the enemy to attack us with decisive blows. And he's talking more about, you know, like speaking specifically to the the situation of the ur urban guerrilla. But it, I kind of see what you're saying in, in his reference to the rural guerrillas, like lagging behind and they're not as motivated or as engaged or as part of the struggle. And like I did get a bit of that impression. Uh uh, I mean, it's I I can't speak to it. I guess it, I guess it's probably uh, you know more about his personal history, but it seems as though it, it's kind of a you know a, an experience bias, and that you know he's experiencing a certain type of life, and so like uh, that's how he's perceiving it. Right. I mean, he grew up. So he to to give a little. I mean, I I gave a little background in the beginning, but I think it's a good time to just kind of reintroduce some of that. He grew up in the north. Uh, which at the time was predominantly rural um, and, you know, moved to the southern part of Brazil, which was more urban, um, more, it was wealthier and has more institutions, like formal institutions and the like. Um, but, you know, I, I don't know. I think, it, yes, it could be possibly that he saw enough in the rural situation and enough of trying to organize in the rural space that he was a little bit frustrated by while still sympathizing and, and supporting rural guerrillas or rural, not just, not necessarily guerrillas, but just like rural populations in general. Right. Um, but I sometimes, I mean, I don't know, it, it, it could be that he knows enough and he himself grew up there and he can, he can say with better authority than I could uh, mm -hmm. that organizing in those spaces was difficult around certain issues or at least compelling them to, act in quite the same way without having some sort of direct contact with what's with the oppression. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't, I don't know. And of course, as I said, I can't find the section now. And if I find it, I'll put it in the show notes so that people will be like, Wendy, what are you, they won't be like, Wendy, what are you talking about? You know, like where, <laughs> where is that? But there is a line where he says something more about like the urban or the rural gorilla, not being as enlightened or something. And I, I was kind of like, well, 
different approach. Yeah, and I, mean, but... I think I think you know if we look at people that have done organizing in even just in the U.S., uh, I think that there's. I, I imagine people can have have experiences that reflect both of those realities. You know that they've gone into mm -hmm. rural areas and been basically completely shut out, shut down, and treated like a, a a person out of their mind or whatever. And then others where they find that some of the most you know active and you know informed advocates are, are off on these farm, off on a farm somewhere, not near anybody. And I think that there's I can see I can see arguments for both. You know, for both the the city and for the rural and when you consider the kind of solitary lifestyle that one's going to lead that that would it would make sense that you would find some of your best options uh out in rural populations where they're more isolated right and i think in general i think in general we see this in a lot of like revolutionary um writings sometimes there's i mean we've seen both of us have seen it in mm -hmm. the things that we read previously right uh mm -hmm. there's kind of this refrain where like we're going to help that other group. There's an othering that goes on, whether intentional or not, usually not intentional, obviously, um, <laughs> where there becomes sort of a distance. And the idea is that like, we're the more enlightened ones. We have to go help this other group or we're going to like, we, we see them like, for example, he calls the rural gorilla as like the backbone of these movements. So he sees, mm -hmm. he, he sort of recognizes the symbolic significance of not only the people themselves, but the, experiences that they have in direct contact with government and military violence. Um, but at the same time, he sort of, I don't know, he turns them into sometimes more of a symbol than an actor. And I think this is like pretty normal in a lot of left-leaning language sometimes. And, and not just not just rural, urban, but you also see, for example, um, the intellectual versus the the hourly wage worker right or like the mm -hmm. black no one really says this anymore but in older texts you do kind of see like the the black masses of the former and formerly enslaved masses and the white intellectuals there's this division that some point out more explicitly than others that's underlying in a lot of these texts but i don't know yeah. it's maybe something that's got to still be, be overcome <laughs> Yeah, I think, you know, despite, you know, having, you know, seen several revolutionary attempts uh, around the world and throughout history, uh, there's still, I think it's clear that there's still plenty to learn and understand about how how to make that successful and ide as ideal as possible. And I think that the, the, the divisions among that get formed is part of that and how that plays out is important. And it, it, it I see it in you know today's atmosphere as well you know the mm -hmm. people realigning themselves with new political identities and myself included you know uh, and uh, new understandings of the political realities that they actually face and it's a vulnerable time period where you're you're vulnerable to misinformation or manipulation and uh, other aspects like that and it, it becomes uh, it a bit of a I don't know, intimidating uh, thing. It seems mm -hmm. almost easier just to settle on something that you're comfortable with rather than trying to learn and expand a new understanding of uh, the systems at play that will give you more of a revolutionary mindset as opposed to, you know, identifying more as, you know, a reformist or progressive or uh, some of the other less radical terminology that is, you, we see people coalescing around. Mm 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, def- I was going to say it's definitely the more popular version. It's kind of like the happy medium or the unhappy medium sometimes. Um, mm-hmm. But it's definitely something that I think, as you said, it's more palatable, right? If it's new to you, it's 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 less risky. And so people like to be feel safe, you know. Um, so I found the passage, by the way. So this okay. is on page 40. Finally found it after like, I don't know, what felt like 30 minutes of my being like, I can't find it. Um, so it's on page 40. It says the strategy of the rural guerrilla. Number one, peasant struggles resulting from demands against landlords or from the organization of rural syndicates will develop into armed clashes and in this sense are positive. Okay, noted. Um, However, without firepower, the peasants will be crushed by the forces of reaction. It is unlikely that rural guerrillas will emerge in a strategic sense out of peasant conflicts. The Brazilian peasantry has a very limited political consciousness and its tradition of struggle does not reach farther than mysticism or banditry. Its experience of class struggle under the direction of the proletariat is recent and limited. I was like, mm, what are you talking about, Willis? Like, there are, <laughs> there are definitely slave revolts um, throughout Brazilian history. And maybe he just wasn't aware of them or, you know, who knows. But there are things that are happening that we wouldn't necessarily classify in the formal sense as like Marxist class struggle. But it's definitely oppressed rising up against the oppressor. And they're organized and they're political and they're doing things that are definitely far beyond this, what he classifies as mysticism or banditry. So I was kind of like, I don't know, maybe he just didn't have the resources to, he he hadn't done all his research yet. Yeah, (laughs) seeing that passage in particular, that sounds like, that that sounds personal, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, thinking about somebody specifically from where he grew up, like, yeah, that's what that sounds like. Yeah, it has that kind of tone to it. And, and, and I mean, I think it also reminds me, you know, it's important that while we're, you know, uh, all any of the authors that we look at or any of the revolutionaries or any of that stuff, it's important that we don't deify them or make them more than human or like you know they're still human and they're going they're not going to be perfect and they're going to have they're all going to have their own you know foibles or quirks and uh, like you know this that that to me kind of i I feel that a little bit in the but it's important to note and to be aware of that way you know they can be addressed when you know you're addressing your own ideology or philosophies regarding where you stand right yeah like to be aware of your quote-unquote blind spots uh, which is also Mm -hmm. a phrase that i don't love but it's what I'm working with right now, but I think that it's a, it's the closest we can get to describing sort of what this, what this is, or not necessarily privilege, but just like points where you're overlooking what might actually be organizing and politics, but it's in a language and a structure that you don't necessarily identify with or recognize for what it is just to be careful not to overlook those things. What other thoughts did you have or problems, issues, things that you wanted to bring up that I have, certainly left out oh <laughs> um, no i mean uh, i did remember the 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 one time where he actually used the gorillas as in the, referring to the animal i thought that was uh, interesting and it just caught me by a bit su- by surprise mm-hmm. and then also uh you know the the giant is known by his toe he, he quotes and he says the same could be said of the urban gorilla who's known from afar by his correct tactics and his absolute fidelity to principle Mm-hmm. And so I think that like that kind of addresses what we were talking about earlier in that, you know, how, how do you lay claim to these things without identifying yourself and all, all those those kind of conflicts in that 
by the witnesses, the people that see what happened will will share that information in in the ways that is like, oh, you know, they they took care not to harm the people. They, you know, I was wearing a valuable watch and they didn't even look twice at it. And, you know, like those types of things are are how it becomes clear whether were they criminals or were they uh, guerrillas? And it's like, well, talk to the people that saw what happened and 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 they told and and he emphasizes the importance of having popular support. And there was a particular quote uh, that that took me and I might end up uh, modifying and using in some way in the future for uh, some purposes, but uh, says it is enough to win the support of a portion of the population. And this can be done by popularizing the motto. Let he who does not wish to do anything for the gorillas do nothing against them. Uh. And like, uh, as is, that mentality of you know at least if i'm not gonna you know bother to learn about the revolutionary struggles i'm not gonna bother to learn you know how to you know fly fly a plane or use a boat or whatever you know shoot guns and i'm not gonna do any of those things at least let me not stand in the way let me not act against these people who are trying to improve my the situation for myself and all everyone else as well uh and i think that can be useful and and can be a powerful message as well as like it, you just you don't have to act against them that that's you're not compelled you, you don't have to be compelled to do that you don't necessarily have to join the revolution and you know pick up your gun and do all those types of things in order to still be uh serving a, a positive uh playing a positive role in the situation and so i think that 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 left out to me yeah that's an excellent line to to highlight actually because i think it's one that we absolutely can apply now. Just in thinking about left politics in general and ideology. I mean, one of the things that I've noticed is that there are so, there's so many like sectarian, there's a lot of sectarian drama, like all the different groups uh, on the left online and in real life, uh, like, well, online is real life, but you know what I mean? Like in person, <laughs> I should say, um, mm-hmm. in organizing spaces that I think sometimes get really attached to I'm in this sect or you're in that sect or you follow this ideology and therefore I can't like, there's nothing of value in your ideology. Or I think I see a lot of like demonization of certain sects, um, distortions of history in order to demonize certain sects. And I think it's dangerous on the one hand, but it's also just silly. Like ultimately I've, I've always been of the stance, like, look, if you're doing something that fundamentally has as its base to sort of, equalize things right you want to make equality you're centralizing equality and the act that you're engaging in is toward that end then i always say i'll walk with you right like i i am on your side even if i don't necessarily agree with every single aspect of your ideology if you're if there's at its heart equality is there and making things better for the majority of the population especially those who are already hyper marginalized then cool you know i'm not i'm not so um personally invested in my own status as an xyz fill in the blank political group now i am invested in in saying i'm a leftist like but i always say i'm just a leftist because i i agree with a lot of different tactics and aspects of different ideologies i don't embrace just one um i'm kind of like a like when you know the unitarians on the (laughs) like religion (laughs) and i'm kind of a political unitarian like take what's good from everything right and mm-hmm. some might say that that's like that's childish or Pollyanna-ish or whatever, but it's just it's the approach that I find um, most positive and that works best for me. And I appreciate a lot of what I learned from people who are, you know, to to my left, to be honest. And I don't think it's a good idea to like take time out of your day to shit on other leftists whose ultimate goals are really to make the world a better place. And 
they look to examples around the world, like in Cuba, like in Venezuela, and criticize their governments, if you must, whatever. It's not my personal standpoint. I don't think it's productive in any way. Um, but, you know, I think it's it's important to recognize that, like, there's a lot that we can learn from these places. Um, and instead of shitting on them and shitting on, I don't, I don't know what they're, I don't know what the purpose of shitting on Cuba and Venezuela is actually, but um, but I think it's just, it's, it's a pointless venture, in my opinion. Take what you can learn from them instead of degrading them. It's often used as a way to establish uh, a, a baseline of reasonableness. Like you mm-hmm. have to admit that this thing is horrible in order for you, for me to be able to take seriously anything else you want to say. And so it's, right. it's like you have to acknowledge these atrocities or this happening or and and you have to do it within the framing that I've placed it in rather than within the framing of what you know, how it's perceived by the people that actually went through it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that I think is is how I see it used a lot, and it becomes very destructive in that way. And people feel compelled to 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 I don't know to to be complacent with that and to to you know bow down to that framing and that understanding so that they can you know appeal to this person that they feel can be drawn in. And that's one of the aspects I think of the, this argument, this dynamic that I've seen in various sectarianists uh, of the left or whatever is, you know, I, you know, two years ago, flashback two years ago, I wasn't, you know, I wouldn't consider myself, uh, you know, a revolutionary or on the path to being one or anything in those lines, like, you know, maybe, you know, political revolutionary, maybe, you know, <laughs> like the very slogan. Uh, so, I, I mean, I wasn't, uh, my politics weren't what they were or weren't, what they are today back then and so like and i had to be moved and what moved me may not be what moves other people mm-hmm. and what didn't move me may move other people and so like uh that dynamic of you know you know how do we appeal to people who aren't with us yet and who's you know wh- who's who's who are we capable of convincing and who's not worth our efforts and how how do we determine those types of things and seeing that play out and how people are trying to assess that i i see some like i almost see it uh, a revolution working to the advantage of our oppressors in that if they can if they can rush us into it then it it can it, it makes it easier for it to fail because we're not prepared and you know the doc right. the, this document kind of touches on that and and really goes into it. it's like if you're not prepared then your the results aren't going to be what you expect you're expecting mm-hmm. and and so like sometimes i feel like the you know like i saw a tweet recently you know the democrats you know you have to be a democrat to run for the nomination basically specifically targeting bernie sanders although they couched it in different terms i'm sure but mm-hmm. like seeing that it's like they're 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 prodding people they, it's like it feels like they're in, intentionally encouraging people to overreact or react act rashly uh, as carlos put Oh, yeah. I mean, I think it's a matter of, as you said, it's sort of an attempt to, in some ways, dissuade others from anything more radical. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think it's also an attempt to kind of, it's just a basic attempt to control the narrative, right? Um, Which is actually one of the things that I found myself questioning here as well when I was reading this. Like, it seems like the basic principles that guerrillas, the urban guerrillas supposed to follow is that of understanding that your goal is to take down the military regime that defends Northern, like North American imperialism, specifically U.S. imperialism, right? Mm -hmm. And I think beyond that, we don't really get a sense when we're reading this, what the full 
ideology is behind this struggle. We get we get steps of you know what to do, but we mm. don't necessarily have an ideological basis other than imperialism is the direct enemy. The people who defend imperialism or the systems that act to defend imperialism are also the enemy and our direct immediate enemy. Um, and I think sometimes when leftism online or otherwise attempts to kind of break into so many different diversions, oh, we're going to fight for this group, we're going to fight for that group, we're going to fight against this regime, we're going to fight about this. It, it loses that basic goal, which is to defeat imperialism, right? And to defeat mm -hmm. capitalism as it currently stands and is an oppressive force in our everyday lives. I mean, it, it, those, those are fundamentals. And I think sometimes people get really wrapped up in like what other countries are doing and ultimately, you know, one of the things I thought was super fascinating about this reading as well that I think we can very easily apply is there's also a debate I see waged often about what is the role of the U.S.-based citizen in struggles on the left, and especially if they consider themselves internationalists, right? Um, and I think this reading kind of gave us an idea of that. It's, it's, a, it's a bit of a, mm, like a comparison or a simile of sorts. Like the U.S. the U.S. leftist is to... The, the international struggle as the urban guerrilla is to the rural struggle, right? Mm -hmm. This much larger rural struggle that's going on in Brazil and that has very immediate effects. Um, and I think that, you know, in many ways, even if you're a person of color in the U.S., sort of, we can have an argument all day about how we're mm -hmm. oppressed and we are, and there are people who have it very bad on the basis of class, race, fill in the blank, you know, point of being marginalized. But I think there are also moments when we have to step back and say, um, you know, what are the ways that even if we are oppressed here, can we show support to people in other countries that are being oppressed on levels that sometimes for some of us, not all of us, because there are definitely situations here that are comparable, but that are, are somewhat, you know, that pale into com in comparison and that are done in our name, right? That are done in the name of U.S. Americans um, against other people. And so how can we defend? How can we support? How can we stand up for other oppressed groups? While at the same time keeping in in focus, keeping in our in the front of our brains, right, that we have to be fighting against imperialism. That's our main goal, and we're in the seat of it. We're in the center of imperial, an imperial state, right? Um, mm -hmm. So, what is our role in that? And I think that it's kind of, I think a lot of the tactics that he tells us to employ on the rhetorical level, on in terms of propaganda, intellectuals, what they can do, um, I think it's really important. And I think, uh, you know, people can take fighting imperialism to mean different things like how they want to do that i mean i'm again y'all can like if you go do something violent please don't pin it on me <laughs> but, but you know people can do whatever they feel is best within their means and but you know as he mentions i think it, it's said been said over and over by people on the left but you have to employ a variety of tactics there's just to be a diversity of tactics and we have to do he even says in this text you know like do what you can do with what's within your reach um, and I think it's really important for us, and I'm speaking specifically to people who are of marginalized groups in the United States who want to express solidarity to marginalized groups who are being marginalized under the yoke of imperialism and capitalism abroad. We have to understand that our situations are similar, but not the same, right? Um, mm -hmm. And to understand our place in that fight may look different from their place in that fight, but to not spend our time, or I should say waste our time, shitting on countries that are already suffering under U.S. imperialism. Like, we don't necessarily need to add to that. I think what we can do is 
defend the rights of people, defend the rights that people have to exist, defend their right to vote for whomever they want to vote for, defend their right to defend themselves against imperialism, um, you know, and, and show support in other ways. But I don't think denigrating, um, you know, left-leaning socialist countries or countries that are that are already being antagonized by the U.S. necessarily helps the situation. I'm not saying you can't say anything, but I'm just saying if that's if that's what you spend like 22 out of the 24 hours of your day doing, it's not the most productive role that you can take as a member of the left in the U.S. That's mm-hmm. just me. No, yeah, and I mean uh, the like. I think one of the ways that some people might have seen that kind of uh, manifest in our current political situation, or at least from my perspective, was uh, the John Oliver uh, piece on Venezuela. That, mm-hmm. that it seems is like it had a lot of what you were describing uh, that should be avoided, uh, kind of just lined up and presented in a you know TV format. In like I, I I was like I mean I like I said I'm part of this program and part of my journey in general is just learning a lot about stuff that I hadn't known about decolonizing my mind and understanding the more uh, we'll say more comprehensive understandings of uh, conflicts uh, abroad and in history than the kind of whitewashed sanitized versions that we get when presented in traditional uh, educational atmospheres or in the media. And Venezuela is one of those situations. And John Oliver, uh, uh, you know, he did a he had a good piece on, you know, prisons, the populations and some of this, like some of the problems that we have with that. Uh, so he's often, you know, obviously not a terribly radical person, but viewed as a reasonably uh, good mouthpiece for leftish leaning people. And mm-hmm. to see what he did with Venezuela and then the the the, the counterpiece that was put up uh that and just kind of really goes through the entire episode and how terrible of a job he did and like how clearly the people like either the people that did it either didn't know what they were doing or were had an agenda but it it was a gross mistreatment from a group of people that have while maybe not the same politics as i or the same perspective as i generally have a more balanced or rationalized uh perspective and that was just really bad to see that there than that i can only imagine the portrayals of venezuela elsewhere and one of the few things that I know I knew about Venezuela before, you know, uh, getting c- curious about the situation there as I've started studying socialism and so on and so forth uh, was, you know, people are hungry and, you know, there's violence in the streets. And, you know, I, I hear the things that were mentioned in that special, but then the way that they were the, the context of them and how like I didn't have any of that as it was provided in the, the counter video. And so that was. Uh, uh, very enlightening to me and it, it, like I said it just kind of captured a lot of what you're talking about as far as punching left mm-hmm. yeah and I think too that there's a there is a degree to which I think people have come become accustomed to democracy at home and imperialism abroad right mm-hmm. and this is this is something that we see commonly of of liberals but also some people who are self-proclaimed leftists where they just kind of they're like, they're really focused on domestic issues, which is fine. I mean, we live here. It's important to be focused on domestic issues, but um, I think it goes beyond just a focus on domestic issues and a full on um, like supremacy of domestic issues. (laughs) Uh, So then it becomes a rejection of any sort of internationalist policies. And for me at the heart of left politics should be an understanding and recognition of, you know, our need to be 
very much aware of what's going on around us, how we can undo the systems that are done, that are used against people abroad and undo the systems that are used against those people in our names with our tax dollars and with our, you know, claiming to be to our benefit when all they do is harm other people. And often, sadly, you know, like bounce back and harm us too. I mean, I don't think these things are separate. And I think it's important for leftists to start to draw um, very clear lines between, or not lines between, but draw connections between, there we go, connections uh, between domestic and international issues without demonizing other people's populations. Because the John Oliver segment was, you know, derogatory, not only of the government, but of the people of Venezuela, of Venezuelan mm-hmm. voters, and many of whom, you know, are are the supposed poor people that you want to defend, but then you're going to insult in the same breath. So it's really, it's contradictory and to me, not becoming uh, <laughs> of someone who claims to be even liberal, right? Like if you claim yeah. to be in the center, it's not a good look for them either. I do want to transition though, just to kind of talking about a few last things from the piece. And then we got a question, um, as I hinted at the beginning, we have a question on Curious Cat about our discussion of history will absolve me. So I want to get to that uh, before we close out. But some things that I thought were just interesting points to acknowledge of the text that were questions that were raised for me and that perhaps we can try to answer in subsequent uh, discussions uh, later on. But one of them for me was, for example, who are the leaders, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and he talks a lot about, he sort of, he pushes a horizontal leadership model, which is what mm-hmm. we're used to seeing nowadays. It's very common, not so much a top down, but you know, you have, you have someone who's particularly good at something, like he uses an example of someone who's a good marksman who can shoot well to be the leader of a firing group. But in other, in, in, within that circumstance, you still have other people kind of doing their own thing and you don't have like a hierarchical system. Um, so then my question was like, who are the leaders and how do you control the narrative and the acts if you don't have any leaders and keep something like this from spiraling out of control? Um, yeah. and- he kind of describes <laughs> like a, like a, a, a small group of people that are kind of directing things to a degree, but doesn't really get into the, the nitty gritty of how that happens. Right. So it kind of, I found myself wondering like, if we're going to apply something like this, what would it look like? Um, just as, in terms of a leadership tactic, what, what happens and especially if we're engaging in acts of violence like or acts of property destruction i should say um but although for him there is also an element of violence against you know military members and police how would you how would you control something like that without it getting a little bit and and he also mentioned he mentions the role of saboteurs and the role of informants and whatnot so i just found myself thinking like is this feasible in any way um and I know for a fact that, you know, in the time that it was happening, it wasn't it, it didn't end up working well because there were so many people who were informants and involved from the government that were breaking down the process, arresting people, murdering people. So, so it's 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 a complicated uh, it's, a, it, it's hard to measure success and the reach of something like this. The other question I had was um, the problem of collateral damage. So what do you do whether while well, he talks about, you know, being focused around principle and not harming civilians and the like. There's a possibility of civilians being harmed in this. If you're bombing a military, you know, military barracks, for example, there are workers there who are maybe not part of the military who are cleaning or who work on the grounds, but, or who are just visiting to do something like, you know, you just never know um, where do you draw the line between the enemy and the civilian and avoid the problem of collateral damage. And then also I was thinking about what do you do in the situation? with regard to blowback and intensity from the government. 
So he often talks about the need to attack, um, uh, to keep your attacks unpredictable and uh, mm-hmm. you know, attack when the government is quiet or the military is quiet, military and the police are quiet and not doing anything. Um, but at the same time, we know for a fact that the response from the government, the response from dictatorial regimes are always going to be disproportionate. Um, so how do you, how can, how can we advocate for such dramatic acts knowing that they will lead to crackdowns that are beyond the initial act? Uh, so, you know, kind of what, th- these are questions also just kind of thinking about the place of violence and, and where it fits in terms of left ideology, what that looks like. So the, yeah, these are questions that I was left with. Mm-hmm. And I would love to hear what you think about some of those. And if you had any closing questions that you also were left with as you were reading. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, regarding the questions that you mentioned, I think it, it's tough. Like you said, it pushed a much more of a horizontal uh, kind of management, or, you know, managerial situation. And it, it was very much self-started and, you know, self like, motivated on being self-motivated uh and i i like you mentioned uh, some of the it does end up having to deal with certain issues like with the saboteurs and informants and so on and so forth and those it's it's a it's a difficult task and i don't uh, and in, in in very in in modern times some things have changed and like revolutionary each time that we see one of these revolutionary attempts throughout history uh, it wasn't just the revolutionaries who have the opportunity to learn from this. It's also the the tyrants. And mm-hmm. so every every weakness that's identified in these historical accounts is going to have had some sort of, you know, uh, you know, treatment from the ter- tyrants as regarding to how are they going to protect themselves or insulate themselves from those risks. And uh, especially the more the more of the stuff that I see, I see from the early 60s and uh, it, in late 50s in that general time frame the more i see is like oh well this is what they did this is how they addressed that kind of this was a weakness that they saw and this is what they did to try and address it you know like talked about in the propaganda episode bullet theory and you know the idea of making a bigger stronger better bullet and that that wasn't very effective so they were like well how do we make how do we weaken people's knees how do we you know take out you know like put them off balance so that it takes much less to knock them over and so you see the, you know, the systematic destruction of uh, educating the populace and, and you see it in other countries as well, uh, where, you know, they try to they increase literacy rates and reduce the population's ability to engage with the type of uh, information and the type of organizing and the types of things it takes in order to even get to the, the, the steps preceding a revolution. Right. And I think, too, that what ends up happening is that it's like things just get flattened. So there's, you know, we see, for example, there's a lot of obscuring of certain violences that happen towards people. They're not necessarily censored, but they just are overlooked or people become conditioned to them. So like now we see so many videos of people being harmed by police, right? We see it on a regular Mm -hmm. basis, but we've just kind of like, okay, like you see it and then you go on to your next thing. Like you, you have pictures of or videos of people being murdered by police interspersed with that of puppies and interspersed with that of like, you know, makeup tips and stuff. It's just, it's a constant stream to the point that it's, it's, it's yes, the government is engaging in acts that harm us physically. Um, mm-hmm. But they're also, there's also like a, another type of violence that's happening. That's far more hegemonic. That's far more, it's, it's broader in its reach. 
And I think it's it's one that kind of conditions people into into silence and conditions people into indifference, which is m- so scary to me. It's almost like the most powerful tool that they have. Mm-hmm. Well, and and you mentioned you know the marginalized communities and in. in- the u.s and i think and like also the role i think the role that the u.s plays in imperialism and in the capitalistic structures that are oppressing so many people around the world by being a resident of the united states and living in the united states it it uh i think it burdens us with certain responsibilities and also grants us uh you know some some luxuries that aren't available to you know uh revolutionaries or towards oppressed peoples throughout the world and uh you know when you like for me when i see you know pictures of yemeni children or i see you know the the violence the the, hear the stories of uh immigrants being torn families being torn apart and all those things and you know that they are happening in my name and you know what am i how how can i you know reduce that suffering and like you said, you know, it, it's all intermixed with these other just daily images that we get, you know, puppies and, you know, tips and all those types of things. And it, it seems that people have just kind of accepted it as part of their reality. And like, I don't know if these images, you know, the, the Palestinian people in Gaza, if, if what's going on in all these circumstances, you know, like I said, for Yemen and all around the world, if that's not activating you to, to act, then I'm not sure what what's left. You know what what mm-hmm. more atrocity? Like we're running out of terrible, horrible things that can happen without people feeling compelled to have to do something. Right. Yeah. There. And I think it's. I think it's. It's almost like a. It's as if we're being overwhelmed with images, so then we feel like it's too big to do anything. Right. Mm-hmm. It's like you see so much of it that it's the sheer volume that then it's almost like okay, well. There's nothing I can do. So I'm just going to turn it off. And it's, it's too much. It's too much, too big of a problem. So I'm just going to become indifferent or I'm going to turn it off. And I don't want to see it anymore because there's nothing I can do. I can't fix it. You know, it's, it's, it's a very, I don't know. It's, it's a mix of both psychological and physical harm that I don't know what to do with. Um, I mean, I know I can speak out against things, but in terms of which one is more dangerous, how it, how it operates, I don't know. It raises a lot of tough questions um, yeah, that I don't have any answers for. For myself, you know, it's like every time, you know, I like, uh, you know, pay taxes on things or, you know, I, I go to work or whatever. It's like I feel like a collaborator, you know, like, and it, it's a it's a tough personal experience. You know, it's like just dealing with, you know, it's like, man, you know, it's like I know this like it's not directly, but, you know, in an in indirect sense, you know, this money is going to pay to cause harm to people that have no way to defend themselves. And I'm just sitting right there in the nexus of the, you know, the center of the power structure that's doing it. And, you know, I'm, I'm benefiting from it. Like the reason why I get to, you know, have a computer that can do these broadcasts and do these types of things is because I'm benefiting from that oppression of those people that I help sponsor with the money that I earn from the job that feeds into this corporate capitalistic machine that is helping to destroy all these people's lives. And, it it becomes it is a bit overwhelming just to even like confront it, you know, and and uh, the it's scary to think about confronting it and not already having an answer ready for you, you know, like you might confront it and realize, nope, I I'm just part of that, and I am just I'm I'm not, 
you know, I'm not helping. I'm making it mm-hmm. people's lives worse. And it's like some people realize that, you know, whether it because, you know, their family situation, their personal finances, whatever, that they can kind of from the outset see it's like, you know, I'm not going to sacrifice this stuff for a better world for those people anyway. So I really shouldn't invest any time or effort into understanding why what I'm doing is wrong. Mm-hmm. I think that if Mariela were to reply to us, he would say, what you should do is join the military and then every time you get a gun, give it to the enemy, the quote unquote <laughs> enemy. And then every time you go to every time you go to work at the bank, shuffle some money over to somebody whose bank account is at zero or overdrawn or, you know, like literally mm-hmm. to commit acts, quote unquote criminal acts, but to do it in the interest of supporting those who are oppressed. I think that's what his answer would be. Mm-hmm. What that looks like in application, I don't know, but I, I think that's how he would risk. That's what this book would tell us to do. Yeah, that's that's the impression that I got. And it definitely has some attractive uh, aspects because, like you know, the idea of, of procuring resources through what feels righteous uh, definitely feels more than working a shitty job for a shit wage. <laughs> so, yeah. <I'm> like, <laughs> <laughs> yes, it does. And I mean, I do, I do my part. I may not pick up a gun, but I definitely do my part by at least taking, you know, I'm in, I'm in a quote unquote elite institution. <laughs> and I just use, I try to use what I learn to inspire other people, to teach other people, to learn from other people, to be honest, because it's not a one way street, right? It's like a two way street. Mm-hmm. I think that that's, that's my my way of picking up the gun, if you will, or we just robbing the bank. <laughs> I rob I rob the bank by taking what I learn and trying to make it easily accessible. And I don't mean accessible like dumbing it down. I mean in the sense where it's like some people may not know about these resources. Let me make them available to the you know like everyday people to listen to, to learn about, and then to grow curious about enough to go read it themselves. So that's my way of contributing for now. And um, hopefully. You know, if and when I become a professor, I can contribute in that way, too. And I mean, I don't know. I, I do what I can. I, do, I really do try to find ways to subvert the system that I work within. I would like to go further than that. Sure. But I don't know what that looks like uh, right now. And I hope to learn of other ways to do that. To end, I wanted to talk about this question that we received on Curious Cat. We got a question, finally. Mm-hmm. Yes. I'm so excited. <laughs> um, so my, first of all, my bad, because I, I had received, this question came in in like April. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> I had not logged into Curious Cat because I was like, no one's sending us questions. So I'm just, I'm going to look at it like once a month. And then April and May were super busy for me. And now I'm about to leave again to do research. So even June has been pretty busy. Um, so that's why there hasn't been a podcast in a while. Um, but we got a question. The question says, in the History Will Absolve Me episode, which was so dope. That's what they said, not me. Um, <laughs> thank you. Thank you Thanks. for that. You made a comment somewhere along the lines of criticizing Fidel's admiration of the enemy soldiers. I can certainly see that being put, being off-putting if it were like U.S. soldiers, but for the soldiers of third world countries, don't you think it is a bit of a different dynamic? After all, the military was the driving force behind the revolutions in Burkina Faso and Venezuela, just to cite two examples. So I just responded by saying, your question has been noted. We will respond to it in this episode. Um, So I just want to give my quick response and then Richard, feel free to um, chime in. But Mm -hmm. I feel like we addressed this in the episode itself. Um, But we noted that while I was, you know, while I kind of pointed out that it was weird that he seemed to take the side of the enemy soldier at times, that I felt like he was doing it for 
the sake of propaganda to kind of do what we were talking about in this podcast. Like, how do you appeal to the person that's working for the enemy to get them to be on your side? And so I think by showing a hint of of sympathy um, to the enemy soldier, that was one way to kind of do that. And I also think that he, you know, in the case of of Cuba um, and many other countries, actually, not just Cuba, but many, many other places, there's conscription. I mean, even in the U.S., there was there was, you know, you were obligated to serve. And so I think for him, he recognizes that many of the boys and men who were serving in military um, in Batista's interest were not necessarily there because they love Batista, but that they were, you know, conscripted or had family obligations or whatever. They had different circumstances that made them, you know, engage in what they were engaging in. But I think primarily it was a rhetorical tool. That's how I read it. And I think that's what we noted um, during the actual podcast. Yeah, no, and I, I think uh, as far as uh, you mentioned, you know, they could see it more with U.S. soldiers. I think that highlights a bit of how any of the information that we use in, when, we, when we're looking to apply it uh, and or find its relevance to American politics, that there's going to be, you know, different issues where, you know, the, the way that America's military is used and what those soldiers are most commonly used for is different than it's often in uh, many of the other countries where we've seen these types of revolutionary struggles and that like, obviously we're much more active. Our soldiers are used much more actively for imperialistic purposes around the world rather than used domestically. And so uh, I would, you could probably also compare many of the, uh, the, the military people in, in Fidel's case more towards our national guard, uh, like a conscripted national guard rather than a, uh, the, you know, more active military members. Mm-hmm. I think that yeah. there, there's an aspect of that as well. And, and that happens in a variety of other countries as well. Um, Definitely. I'm, I'm really excited. We got a question though. <laughs> and uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I mean, uh, quickly is like, I just, it, it is very inspirational and very it, like, I don't think people understand how uh, happy it can make. And at least me and I maybe some people are different in different ways, but when I see people actually, you know, feel like they got something of value and they reach out and mention, you know, it's like, uh, hey, this was really helpful for me or they share it with somebody and they're like, hey, you should really check this out. It had some really great information or any of those types of things. It really, it, it, it's very fulfilling feeling and it makes it, it makes the, some of the inconveniences that come along with the, you know, taking time out to, to do these things, to study and to understand all the stuff. Uh, to know that it's appreciated by people really matters. And so I wanted to thank people, thank the person who asked the question and thank the people that have shared and I've seen tweets and stuff and the things that I've seen. I just want to thank all of you for that. That's really uh, been, it means a lot to me, especially. And when I get down on, on myself or on situations and stuff, uh, when I see those things it help really helps uplift me. So please keep doing them. Richard, you're always closing out with these like really profound statements that are like emotional and sentimental. And I'm like, thanks everybody. Bye. (laughs) (laughs) So you make me look bad, but no, I really, I appreciate, uh, I'm just, I'm less sentimental, I think than Richard. Um, but I, I do appreciate everything that you all have done to give to this podcast, whether it's monetary or through sharing, liking, commenting, leaving a question. Thank you for your question, Anonymous. Um, but yeah, we really appreciate it. And we do we do care about what you have to say. And we do appreciate and care when you share, like, comment, respond. Um, it makes us feel like we're not just speaking into the void. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, and also I should just note here that because I'm a little leftist, I am very fair in my redistribution of wealth. Um, so for those of you who have given, who've been able to give to the podcast, we really appreciate it. And just a little side note, um, sneak peek into the, the behind the scenes, I pay Richard. Um, so whatever you donate to me ends up getting to Richard as well. We have like, a, we've worked out a system thus far. So based on, you know, what I put out of the podcast and what he's involved in, in the podcast, I share with him. So it's, it's really important if you can give a dollar or more. That. And if you like Richard more than me, remember <laughs> that he's getting a cut. So, no, we really do appreciate it. And thank you so much, Richard, for joining me once again for Reading Revolution. I don't know what we're going to do for July. Do you have any ideas of what you want to see on the July roster? I don't know. I mean, uh, I guess uh, I, I mentioned to Wendy beforehand. I, I, first, I want to say I really want to thank the people. And I guess that kind of all goes together is uh, the, the Patreon and Wendy. Uh, for being, uh, you know, consistent on that. And uh, you'd probably be like, I, it'd be interesting to find out the, the financial workings of various left uh, left groups that are taking in money and how that's being distributed uh, among the members <laughs> and contributors. And so like that, what, what Wendy's doing is it, it's very important. I think both structurally into the, like the system of, or to the idea of what we're trying to accomplish. And then also personally, it's like, it, it's not a lot of money, but those of you uh, that are able to donate a dollar know how far a dollar can go sometimes when uh, mm-hmm. you're in a situation. So I, I can't express uh, enough that, 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 both in principle and in practicality, how important that's been for me. And so uh, I, I got to, I want to make sure I got to thank you for that. Thank you. Wendy. I, I haven't necessarily articulated that much to you personally. So I should say that now. Well, I didn't pay him to say that y'all did. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, but yeah, I, I appreciate that Richard. And again, it's so funny. Cause again, we always end, we end our, podcast is like thank you so much i love you so much we appreciate you so it's like really again sentimental and mushy but we're being sincere i mean this is this is a labor of love for both of us and you know we have lives we have other stuff (laughs) going on um and we do put in time for this because we give a shit and we like we care about these these things that happen in history and these ideas that people put on paper and to put voice to gave voice to you know we see it as important and we we we're thankful to them for leaving these documents and leaving this information mm-hmm. so that we don't have to reinvent the wheel. And that's why we care about other people learning from it. And so, you know, again, it's sort of a, it's a big circle of love here. Yeah. I recognize <laughs> I have a lot of privilege to even have the opportunity to do this, but it, it's not as if I don't have enough problems that I couldn't focus exclusively on my own problems and have a very thoroughly full day. And so, uh, to take the time out and to know that people are uh, involved it all matters. And what I was going to say, as far as what we could be talking about next month, uh, yes. one, <laughs> uh, and it, but it's, it's into all this is just more, more revolutionary writing about existing in, in the capitalist imperialist structures, like hmm. in, in what ways do revolutionaries and, and people uh, pushing that find themselves being able to exist and in what kind of professions can they find themselves where they, are less proactively contributing to the oppressive systems or even professions that actively undermine them. And so like learning more about that kind of stuff, I think would be valuable both personally and then also from a theory uh, standpoint. So it sounds like we're going to be going back to the West 
uh, next month. So I'll see what I can dig up. You see what you can dig up. And of course, mm -hmm. we'll take contributions if people want to add to something, uh, add something that they've personally found fulfilling that speaks to these sorts of questions. Um, feel free to just add it to our Curious Cat or tweet me at leftpoc um, with the hashtag Reading Revolution. We'll keep it on our list. You know, we'll consider some of your contributions and ideas. Um, and if we have time and you know, depend, obviously, if it's like a 300-page book, don't send it to us. Um, <laughs> if it's a chapter from that book, we'll be more than happy to entertain it. But we try to keep this short and sweet, um, at least on the reading side, so that we can actually have a really fulfilling and longer conversation about it. Um, but if you, you know, we, we're happy to take contributions and we'll definitely consider them. So if you have something on that front, uh, feel free to add it. Drop us a line. And, uh, yeah. So thanks. Thank you. Don't have fun. <laughs> thanks everyone have a good one and thank you for listening to this episode of the left pocket project podcast be sure to check out left poc and that's l-e-f-t-p-o-c on social media soundcloud speaker and itunes to like share comment and leave us a review and don't forget you can send in questions to left poc via curious cat and show your financial support by visiting patreon.com slash left poc Thanks so much for listening and have a good one.